4: They want to know if the FBI is operating the way it should and it's operating within the guidelines and the standards that are set forth in our Constitution. And based on your experience, is it? No, it's not. For years, Dan Vogel was the public face of the FBI in Oklahoma City. Now retired, he and these other current and former FBI men have been shaken by what's happened to the bombing case. I have made a decision to postpone the execution of Timothy McVeigh for one month from this day... Six so days before McVeigh's scheduled execution, June, the, 11th, the Attorney General announced a delay because the FBI had failed turn turnover more than 3,000 documents before trial. For Dan Vogel, it was the last straw. He decided to speak out. Well, I think they've admitted they've known about the documents since January and didn't say anything that publicly to anyone. That's the greatest concern to me, is that you wait a week before an execution and say, oh, by the way, we have these documents. The documents he's talking about are internal forms the FBI calls 302s. 302s are the lifeblood of any FBI investigation, documenting everything from interviews to witness statements, sightings, or tips. These Oklahoma FBI men talk to us, they say, out of frustration with what's happened in the bombing case and what's gone on inside the FBI generally. All say they've seen the FBI play fast and loose with the facts in internal investigations and be far too casual about evidence. Here's an example. This is a 1999 internal audit of the Oklahoma City FBI evidence room. The report found evidence strewn about on the floor incorrect or missing documentation concluding there was no excuse for maintaining an evidence program in such a fashion the bombing investigation had a separate evidence handling system these men were all part of it working the biggest murder case in the country from the moment it began
2: got in, uh, all up and down Broadway.
4: Cameras caught FBI agent Jeff Jenkins as he ran toward the building minutes after the blast. He won an FBI shield of bravery for what he did that day. We pulled out a uh, African American female whose clothes were just torn apart. and She was pregnant female. She was alive. And we pulled her out and took her out to the street. Also at the bomb site, trying to help the hundreds of injured, was 27-year FBI veteran Jim Volz. Volz became a key player in the bombing case, reviewing thousands of FBI investigation sheets. Extremely surprises me that these documents all of a sudden show up. There's no reason for it uh, unless there is negligence. Behind the scenes at the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, these men say they saw turmoil that some agents and some managers were at each other's throats, trading charges of racism and trying for retaliation. There's been numerous problems in terms of race uh, uh, issues where uh, a certain supervisor made uh, racist statements to me. Jim Volz tried to mediate Jenkins' complaint, asking the supervisor to apologize. Did you get the apology? To this day, no. No apology. I just got more retaliation. For working to help Jenkins, Jim Bolt says he was targeted by the man in charge of the bombing investigation, Danny Deffenbaugh. He threatened me with retirement if I didn't back off. Did you back off? No. Bolt says he was eventually forced out by Danny Deffenbaugh, the man who ran the Oklahoma City bombing case. Deffenball recently told a Dallas TV station his bomb investigation was rock solid. That was done correctly and properly. Every time you hear criticism of the FBI, you never hear about the Oklahoma City bombing case. Just a few days after that interview, the FBI announced the serious foul-up in the bombing case. A week later, in a meeting with Congress, Deffenbaugh acknowledged that he had known for months some documents hadn't been turned over. The FBI didn't want him to talk to us for this story. I think it would be
3: fair to look at Mr. Defenbaugh and then proceed down the line. But he had the ultimate responsibility to ensure everything was done properly, and apparently it was not.
4: Vohl's claim that Danny Deffenbaugh had retaliated against him was heard by a judge. In a scorching ruling, she found in Vohl's favor, writing that the man in charge of the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, Deffenbaugh was not credible and cannot be believed. Deffenbaugh is appealing.
0: Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy, not the compensatory call in. Today's date, Saturday, July 15, 2023. So I have been told. We have been studying Columbine 1999 massacre at the high school. Eric Harris. Dylan Klebold, we wrapped up Dave Cullen's book in the Catherine Massey Book Club this past Thursday. New book coming up next week. In wrapping up that book, we were going over our major takeaways. What did we learn? So many of us were poorly informed about this case that is so important, continues to be 25 years later. Number one on my list, and for many other people, this was a failed bombing i always thought about columbine school shooting school shooting that's what this was which they did shoot people but this was a failed bombing uh the date it's reported they may have been looking at the date of april 19 1999 to carry out their massacre and ended up being moved to april 20 which is hitler's birthday but it got that both ways Even if they did not originally look at April 19 to time things up exactly with the date of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, they wrote very specifically about Tim McVeigh. Dave Cullen told us it is a safe bet that Eric and Dylan watched the carnage of Waco and Oklahoma City on television with the rest of the country. Those atrocities were particularly prominent in this region. McVeigh was tried in federal court in downtown Denver and sentenced to death while the boys attended Columbine in the suburbs. The scenes of devastation were played over and over. In his journal, Eric would brag about topping McVeigh. Oklahoma City was a one-note performance. McVeigh set his timer and walked away. He didn't even see his spectacle unfold. Eric dreamed much bigger than that. Judgment day, they called it. Columbine would erupt with an explosion too. The boys were going to double or triple McVeigh's record. They estimated the damage variously as hundreds, several hundred, at least four hundred. They were going to top Tim McVeigh. The trial got moved there. McVeigh's incarcerated there. I even had to point out, wow, so Timothy McVeigh and the late Ted Unabomber Kaczynski were all incarcerated in a Supermax facility in Colorado by the end of 98. That's six months before the failed bombing at Columbine. so much to learn. I did not know that that's the way that we should think about what happened at Columbine and in fact when I read the book we're discussing today, it says one month after Waco in Texas, 1993 also April 19 Tim McVeigh ordered a book called Homemade C4 published by Paladine Press in Boulder, Colorado a fertile source Of how to books on guns, ammo, and explosives. What in the rebel? Did they? I was thinking he was going to say anarchist cookbook, and what? (sighs) So many things make sense now. Add Eric Rudolph in there as well. He gets a quick reference in this book, who did the Olympic Park bombing in 1996. Now you have a much better representation for Bomberman and the 1990s all of that white bombing activity and how we end up with maybe January 6th. Boogaloo boys, those wacky power outages that keep happening. Even, I forgot the Nichols, Michigan, get everything in Michigan where they were going to kidnap the Governor, because they were upset about her COVID-19 policy, kidnap and execute Gretchen Whitmer, straight line, boop, what we are talking about today to what is going on right now, still learning, our guest for the broadcast co-authored the book, we will be chatting it up about Oklahoma City, published in 2012, help us see, does all of this make sense? in connecting some of these dots. Uh, His resume, impressive. Uh, Let's see, I'll share quick details. He is English-born, Oxford University-educated. He's worked for more than 20 years as a foreign correspondent for British newspapers, The Guardian, and The Independent, including assignments in the Balkans, Italy, the Middle East, and since 1998, the United States. He's won awards for investigative reporting and political commentary we are thrilled to have him on the broadcast with us joining us live beating the heat our guest Andrew Gumble. Mr. Gumble, you're with us I am with you thank you very much for having me thank you so much sharing a bit of your Saturday evening for our listeners I guess you can give us kind of an intro a uh, bit just about who you are and the work you do sir
5: sure well I live in Los Angeles I've written about a great number of different things i spent you know, on and off more than 10 years working on the Oklahoma City bombing case. Uh, I got involved right around the time that 60 Minutes broadcast went out. uh, When McVeigh was about to be executed, uh, I was asked by my newspaper to write a piece about the bombing. And my first thought was, then we know all about that already. Um, And then when I started reading about it, and in particular, there's a book that McVeigh authorized that was written by two reporters from his hometown, Buffalo, New York, uh, called American Terrorist. I read that book. And my second thought was, I don't know what happened in the bombing, but whatever it was, it was not this because it doesn't make any sense. And ever since then, I've, you know, I went on a long quest to try and figure out what happened. Um, and, you know, what the story ended up being closer to is some of the discontent that you heard some of the FBI agents uh, expressing in that 60 Minutes piece. Uh, that there was a tremendous amount of dysfunction in the investigation. I would take issue with the notion that it was all the fault of Danny Deffenbaugh, who was the man in charge of the task force. I, I would argue that the issue was that he was put there because he was relatively powerless and there were other people fighting all kinds of turf wars within the FBI, between the FBI and other agencies. And it really clouded The public view of what really happened, it prevented the investigators from getting to the bottom of what really happened. And what we ended up with was a partial picture at best, uh, that was, you know, really designed to secure convictions, a trial for McVeigh and his co-conspirator Terry Nichols. And to that extent was successful. And by the way, they were guilty. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that they were involved in the bombing in a very profound way. You know, what got left unanswered is who else helped them? How did they learn to build bombs when neither of them had any background uh, in that? Uh, And the experiments that they did that we know about were not successful. Um, And, you know, what happened on the morning of the bombing itself was the plan from the get go to leave this truck outside a daycare center at the federal building. When the professed target was federal judges, the federal government more generally, why are you blowing up innocent people in the social security office and a daycare center instead of more consequential targets? And, and, you know, I came to some at least tentative answers to all of those questions uh, in terms of a broader conspiracy, in terms of the ideological inspiration to the attack and, and how it unfolded what we do know about what else may have gone on and what we can't know because of the mistakes that were made at the time.
0: Fascinating. We'll try to cover as much detail as we can. I was ignorant, very ignorant about Columbine and also very ignorant about the bombing in Oklahoma city as well as Timothy McVeigh. He did, that. I did know the Nichols brothers. I was aware of them, but not very aware uh, I guess for one, uh, you are classified as a white man. Is that correct, Mr. Gumble? That's correct, yes. Okay. Wow. Uh, oh, my goodness, so much. Let's see. Number one, I guess you already explained you read the biography authorized American terrorist uh, that the folks in Buffalo let's go Buffalo that they published about McVeigh <laughs> didn't make sense you started asking questions that led to the book 10 years of research what I can understand because there's so many names and details uh, to all of this uh, I guess number I was stunned and I what, what shall I say I felt a bit of nativism I don't know maybe my my, my Trumpism perked up like, this guy is a British writer. How did he get access to all of these really powerful white Americans to pick their brain about this really important historical event? Can you kind of share, like, some of the amazing folks you got to talk to and and maybe tell us, how did you get access to all these people?
5: Sure. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of it was, you know, the general principles of journalism, which is, you know, if you ask, you never know. You might get an answer. Um, and a lot of people either hadn't asked or hadn't waited enough time to be able to ask. You know, by the time I got around to talking in earnest, uh, most, if not all, of the senior investigators on the case—you know, most of them were retired. They were no longer working for federal law enforcement. They were much freer to speak. Uh, that helped. Um, and then, you know, the other piece of access that was much trickier actually was getting all the documentation in the case. And nobody else before, and as far as I'm aware, since has ever got a hold of the full government file. In fact, more of the government files that was even shown to the defence teams in the federal trials. Um, you know, there was another allusion to that in, in in the 60 Minutes piece that some of the documents were suppressed, were not handed over in a timely fashion, were not, you know, the rules of discovery uh, pre- in a trial were not followed. You know, those documents that were discovered at the last minute before McVeigh's execution were only part of that story. That The defense teams at trial counted 16 separate occasions when they knew of specific pieces of evidence that the government had asked for them and were told they didn't exist. And it was a lie because they later showed up. Um, So, you know, getting a hold of those documents was absolutely key. And essentially, the way it worked was um, it was thanks to Terry Nichols, who's serving a life sentence in the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. Um, I managed to get a line of correspondence to him, which was not easy, because under the Patriot Act, the government had the right to deny any media access to Nichols, and they, they have done for the last 22 years. Um, but I managed, through my co-author, to have a line to his lawyer, and we managed to get a correspondence going via legal mail. Um, and part of that correspondence was Nichols answering a lot of questions in tremendous detail, which was in and of itself very valuable. And then the other part of it was that um, the lawyer managed to convince him to write to his last trial lawyer. who He was tried twice, once in federal court. And then when he didn't get the death penalty there, the state of Oklahoma decided to try him again. He didn't get the death penalty in state court either. But his last trial lawyer in, in for the state of Oklahoma, Brian Hermanson, uh, Nichols wrote to him and said, can you please release all of these documents? And Brian Hermanson did not want to. And it took two letters from Nichols. And eventually he relented and said, I don't think it's a good idea, but you're the client. If that's what you want, I'll do it. So we got a hold of the full case file, all 18,000 FBI interview documents, the 302 documents that were referred to in the 60 minutes piece, And much more besides defense investigative reports and on and on and on. And then once I had that, it was much easier to go back to all the investigators, you know, the ones who wanted the truth to come out. A lot of them, as it turned out, were very frustrated, very angry by what had happened and felt that the full story would not be told and were delighted somebody came along and started asking questions. And then once they understood that I really knew a lot and could reference, you know, a lot of the documents and things that they may have personally forgotten then they were all the more willing to, to be forthcoming. And that applied across the board. It applied to the FBI, the ATF, local law enforcement, but also on the other side of the fence, you know, um, I started up a dialogue with a large number of sympathizers and activists within the radical far right. Um, and they were also, you know, very interested to know what does the FBI have on us? <laughs> and that was a, you know that then became the basis of a of a good conversation because in exchange for what I could tell them, they would tell me a lot of things.
0: Amazing. <laughs> the cows again. Our guest Andrew Gumble, the co-author for his book Oklahoma City. Roger G. Charles. Um, I guess we'll digging into some of the the data of the text. I'm starting way out and then going back to the beginning just to kind of juxtapose and. Wow, for the people we're re- the only reason we're reading your book, sir. A listener said, "Wow, Gus, all these bombers from the '90s from Columbine—the overlap with this case and Columbine is extraordinary." Including, so the police were aware of these bombers, Eric Harris, Dylan Cleveland, and even Timothy McVeigh, in advance. I'm skipping to the very beginning of Chapter Six: The Great John Doe Two. Disappearing Act. We'll discuss all that. Basically, co-conspirators McVeigh and the Nichols, uh, Terry Nichols, did not do this. These just two white guys. The beginning of Chapter Six. Mr. Gumble, co-author, writes: By September 1993, McVeigh's anti-government fury had grabbed the attention of a law enforcement operating under his alias. Tim Tuttle, which I never knew, he was at the crossroads of the West Gun Show in Phoenix, Arizona, when Al Shearer, an undercover hate crimes investigator with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, started up a conversation. McVeigh began telling him how to convert flares into rudimentary explosive shells and said, it's great for shooting down ATF." Helicopters, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Shearer was alarmed and called the local office of both the ATF and FBI. I already said it, but just for context, so this is September. This would be roughly five months after Waco, when you have a lot of white people who are very upset with the ATF, federal government in general, and are saying things like this. Continuing, To his amazement the feds said they couldn't do anything because selling a flare gun was not illegal technically this was correct but after Waco the assumption was that the feds were more attuned to trouble from the radical right as Shearer's supervising attorney put it the issue wasn't so much that this guy was trying to sell flare guns it's that he was a nut in quotes I think potential domestic terrorist given that he's talking about shooting down ATF agents would be better terminology but we'll take the quote now I'm going all the way back to the very beginning of the book this is page or I have the e-copy but for me page uh, 6th of the text this is a quote from Janet Reno at the time talking about their priorities which were something what shall I say less than Timothy McVeigh you write trying to skip the attorney general John Ashcroft was more interested in public decency and outlawing medical marijuana not even recreational than in reports of suspicious foreigners enrolling in flight school likewise his predecessor Janet Reno pushed her justice department to crack down on deadbeat dads while playing down reports of radicals advocating bombs assassinations and shootings i'm putting those together this is talking about 2001 failings i'm putting those together like wow they could have done more to maybe do something about old timothy mcveigh and the folks who maybe led up to the bombing in 95
5: right well there's you know what those passages allude to is a great deal of difficulty that the federal government has had you know, for a long time in recognizing the threat from the radical far right and confronting that threat. Um, you know, there are ways of unpicking all of that um, a little bit. One important thing to know is that the FBI, specifically since the 70s, since the aftermath of Watergate, have had very strict rules um, imposed on them about separating out law enforcement operations from something that could be characterized as intelligence operations and i 'm sure you know, Gus in the '70s the FBI were deeply involved in surveillance of anti war activists and others under the cointel, progr- COINTEL pro- program excuse me um, and once all of that became public in the aftermath of Watergate and the, the The reports in Congress on the activities of the CIA and the FBI, um, there was a tremendous public movement against that. So the FBI had its hands tied a little bit in terms of being able to do intelligence work. You know, they needed a concrete lead of a possible crime. And the problem with the with the flare gun and they talking about shooting down a helicopter is, you know, exactly what I wrote, that selling flare guns is not illegal Speech in which you say reckless things is not in and of itself a crime under the First Amendment. So there was nothing they could specifically do about that. You know, having said that, you know, should somebody have paid attention? Should they have, you know, made a note of McVeigh's name, had some kind of reference so that if his name popped up again, they had something to refer back to? You know, absolutely. Um, and by the way, other agencies were not necessarily constrained in the same way. Um, but again, you know, you, we have a federal system of government. And so you have, you know, the Maricopa County, um, law enforcement who spot McVeigh in Phoenix, you know, they do not in and of themselves have a mechanism to talk to state law enforcement in other states and that they moved around a tremendous amount. So it, it, it was, it was difficult for law enforcement to, to, to keep track of people like that for a variety of reasons. Um, and there was also, you know, I think it's important to emphasize a big cultural problem. I think, you know, if you think about the way that federal law enforcement reacted to the the Black Panthers in the sixties, um, where there was a sense of, you know, here are these guys talking about violent action, brandishing guns. We find them scary. We're going to go after them. In certain cases, we're going to turn a blind eye when they get killed and so on and so forth. When you have a similar level of threat from white people with guns, the sort of the, the cultural affect is, oh, well, this is just part of hotland culture. You know, it's a normal thing. And if people have crazy, extreme ideas and they talk about overthrowing the government, well, you know, look at the lives they lead. They're lead. barely employed. They don't have any money. You know, none of this is going to come to anything. And there was a sort of there was a sort of a cultural assumption that any threats that were made, even by scary people with, neo-Nazi white supremacist ideas and tremendous armory of weapons that somehow this is not something to be taken seriously. Um, then the third element that came along in the 90s is the times when federal law enforcement did try to do something about it. The first time was a, a survivalist from Idaho called Randy Weaver, um, who they were trying to use as an informant to penetrate the Aryan nations. He wasn't interested in being an informant and as a kind of crude form of retaliation, they tried to get him on a gun charge. And instead of just waiting till he came down off his mountain to arrest him quietly somewhere, they decided to go all in guns blazing to this place called Ruby Ridge. Um, and it ended up becoming a lengthy siege. Uh, members of Weaver's family were killed. Uh, law enforcement members were killed. It was a complete disaster and there were, you know, hearings for years afterwards to investigate what went wrong. The FBI came along. Their perception of of events was that they had to bail the ATF out of their screw up. Although, in fact, it was an FBI sharpshooter who killed uh, Randy Weaver's wife while she was holding their 14-month-old baby, which was, you know, a horrific and wholly needless um, act. So there was that. And then shortly afterwards, you had the siege at Waco, uh, the branch Davidians. Um, again, the ATF goes in trying to arrest, make arrests on fairly minor you know, gun charges. They botch it. Four ATF agents are killed. A long siege ensues. The FBI come in. They then botch the siege as a result of which the whole place burns to the ground and 75, 80 people get killed. Um, another huge outcry, you know, perception that law enforcement had been way too heavy-handed. And, you know, all of these events are complicated. There there are layers within that. There were people within the FBI, both at Ruby Ridge and at Waco, who had much better ideas of how to handle it, but they were overruled, and so on and so forth. But what the takeaway within law enforcement from those two two incidents was, you know, we can't afford another siege. We can't go into another radical right compound and screw it up again. And in fact, there had been instances over the previous 10 years of, of law enforcement actions against those kinds of communities that have been very successful. Um, but this is the ceiling by 1995 was, you know, we can't do this. It's, it's too embarrassing. We don't have the means. Uh, the FBI and the ATF were sharing, were theoretically sharing, you know, what they knew about different threatening individuals in different places around the country, but in reality, they were keeping their information to themselves. They didn't trust each other. They weren't sharing anything. And so when you had a situation in early 1995, where there was an indication from another far-right community in remote Eastern Oklahoma, a place called Elohim City, the people there were either planning themselves or in contact with others who were planning to start some kind of revolutionary action to overthrow the government. The first reaction of the ATF was we don't want to go in there because we're frightened of, of you know, of being humiliated again. And the, the new Republican majority in Congress is going to defund us and maybe shut us down. And the yes. FBI's attitude was, you know, for the love of God, <laughs> don't let the ATF go in there. Um, and by the way, you know, we would rather just uh, close our eyes and hope for the best because that's worked for us in the past. So you had McVeigh almost certainly at Ellingham City, certainly friends of his who were there. Um, You had an ATF informant who started putting out very credible information, very well put together information about what they were talking about, what they were planning. And the ATF was so spooked by the idea of having to have another siege that rather than find out what it was that she could tell them, they closed down that informant operation, pulled her out and then went in blind. So six weeks before the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, the federal government lost its best source of information that could have told them about it. And according to the then head of the ATF, he told me years later, if we kept her in there, we would have probably stopped the bombing. So tremendous amount of uh, mismanagement, missignals, signals, cultural blindness, you name it. There were all kinds of factors there that unfortunately did not favor the chances of law enforcement from preventing an act like this and very much favored McVeigh and his friends in carrying it out and carrying it out successfully.
0: Wow. Much obliged for the detail with showing off that Oxford education, our guest, Andrew Gumble. Uh, I just want to point out, I guess with two, well, one, he took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, Yes, we have talked quite a bit about CoinTail Pro on this broadcast. Correct assumption, Mr. Gumble, uh, and the extraordinary difference in how the federal government and even local enforcement agencies respond to angry, armed black people or unarmed, sometimes, as opposed to angry, armed. White people, which we saw on display again at January six, uh, for the most part, because that was a lot of white people there too, unless I had been misinformed. Uh, Correct. Oh yeah, if, if that crowd had
5: all been black protesters, it would have ended very differently. Well, first of all, law enforcement would have been much better prepared for Thank it. Thank you. You know, there's, there's, um, you know, I don't know about an Oxford education, but one of the advantages of coming from another country is, you know, sometimes these things. I don't know the. I see it more clearly, but maybe it seems absurd more quickly. You know, when you see the disparity between the kinds of things you're talking about, you know, it, I, I did, because I didn't grow up here, I immediately just think, what?
3: <laughs>
5: and, you know, and when people talk about gun culture and being part of America, it's like, well, you know, depending which Americans you're talking about, you know, it, it's very clear to me that there is. This huge disparity um, and that, you know, again, it it played very much into the events of of, of
0: 1995. Hmm. That He took the the point right from me, uh, made it eloquently about the treatment of the Black Panther Party. They literally changed gun laws. Ronald Reagan, way before he got to the White House, he was governor of California, changed gun laws. We've got these unruly Negros running around Sacramento. We can't have that. You, that And that theme comes up not just with this book. I said the Columbine element. Haven't we heard this before? Police get the attention. Wow, we've got white person, even an underaged white person, reports that they've got guns and or explosives. We should do something about this. Eh. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, let me draw a couple of
5: parallels or, or distinctions here. Um, because you know, I feel very strongly and I know that my sources for the book feel very strongly that there are a tremendous number of extremely talented law enforcement agents, you know, who were involved in the Oklahoma City investigation and would have loved things to have gone very differently. Um, so I don't think we can paint this with too broad a brush. You know, conversely, I think the problem in Columbine was you had a suburban sheriff's department that was, you know, not up to the task of recognizing the threats, dealing with the threats, being candid about what threats they'd had, how they'd handled them, you know, and and their whole handling of not only the event itself, but then the aftermath and how the sheriff, John Stone, would tell the media things to sort of essentially encourage them to believe things that were incorrect because it, it got the sheriff's department off the hook, you know, all that kind of really, you know, unimpressive law enforcement, um, behavior and action. I, you know, I think it's symptomatic of a, of a small, overmatched department. Whereas I think what the problem with the Oklahoma City case is, you know, almost the opposite, which is you have these very large institutions and w- with a lot of brilliant people, but the brilliant people aren't making the policy, and um, you know, the, they're not. Necessarily the ones on the front line observing specific events and deciding what to do about them. So, you know, you had a very specific failure of the FBI in handling Elohim City. Um, and the, the special agent in charge in Oklahoma, a man called Bob Ricks, who might have run the bombing investigation, but Louis Free, the head of the FBI saw him as a rival and froze him out. He was a brilliant investigator and. Um, you know, when I talked to him, he, he understood things about the, 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 you know, the shoe leather investigation after the bombing that no one else really had that kind of grasp of it or the understanding of what they should have done, what they could have done. But he had a complete blind spot about Elohim City. He decided that the pastor who was in charge of the community, a man called, uh, the Reverend Millar was somebody who was a pragmatist and would never let things run out of control. And that was his view. And he was wrong um And that was a tremendous mistake. And, you know, a little bit like Columbine, where having made the mistakes before the calamity, they then try and cover them up afterwards. Same was true of federal law enforcement with Elohim City. You know, the, the Bob Ricks and the FBI wanted to cover up what they had done. The ATF didn't want to admit to the FBI or anything else how much they knew. And so it was this sort of, excuse me. Blind leading the blind situation that then infected the quality of investigation, the ability of, you know, the trial lawyers to bring out not just the guilt or otherwise of McVeigh and Nichols, but you know, the truth of what had happened. Um, you know, there were, there were tremendous missed opportunities, and some of them were the result of incompetence, some of them were the result of institutional blindness. And some of them were the result of, you know, willful covering up of mistakes so that people wouldn't get embarrassed. And none of that helps to us to find out, you know, why did this happen? What was the threat? What is the recurring threat? Did we catch everybody? If we didn't catch everybody, who else do we need to worry about? All these questions were not the focus. The only focus in the end was, do we have two people? Good. Let's put them on trial. Let's make sure we get convictions. End of story. And that was not the end of the story.
0: That's where your book came in, Oklahoma City, co-author Andrew Gumble. I just uh, want to make a couple quick points, maybe three quick points of distinction uh, before I get to my question. The Turner Diaries, even Richard Snell, I'll do him first, and then The Turner Diaries, one of our favorite books uh, here on the program. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a weird way it? to describe it, but yeah. Why is that funny? It's that's an important text. That's an important book. You write about it repeatedly. Like my goodness, that's oh uh, it, it, important. Yeah, I, I wouldn't describe it as my favorite book. <laughs> we have no. we have different yeah. reading tastes. I wasn't born on your part of the world. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's down the road. Uh, my points of distinction: uh, the you had originally used the term cultural blindness. Uh, and then within your response just a, a few seconds ago, uh, you said that it was all of the the blind leading the blind. These different agencies, ATF and the FBI, they're kind of competing with each other and stealing credit from each other and all of that. So they're not really working efficiently and even before the bombing and not sharing information and that sort of thing. Uh, and you called it institutional blindness. Uh, I think words are so important uh, in describing and particularly this uh, and the overlap with Columbine. We said the same thing. In my view, this is not cultural blindness. If those two white teens had been black, that event would have never, ever happened. There are about a billion different reasons. There is no way in the world that happens. That's not cultural blindness. That is, wow, this is communicating a lot to me about the power of being a white person, particularly when it comes to weapons. White people exercise power in a variety of ways all over the known universe. They got King Charles power, but specifically (laughs) with firearms. It is extraordinary. You can have, I mean, I didn't, I've not even heard of this one. An anti-tank TOW missile is being stored illegally at the OKC Alfred P. Murrah building. Like, what in the world? <laughs> and they say, right. well, it's legal for them to have it, but it's not supposed to be stored here. we got to rush and get everybody out to, like... What in the world? Like, they're so. you have so many instances of firearm. They're going to the gun shows, which is right out of Columbine, and or they're trafficking. You've got this German. He's not even a citizen. He's like you. And he's coming over here trafficking in firearm. And what's this? Uh, Andreas Strassmere, Is that how you say it? Strassmere? Strassmeier. Strassmeyer. Thank you. German. Not even a U.S. citizen. And he's coming here and buying guns and such. That's not even legal unless I've been misinformed. But he's white that's what I mean about that's in my view we're not using the most correct terms and we're really getting away from the problem when it's if you are classified as white it seems anywhere in the world you have a power where you can have firearms and we will be slow to look at you with suspicion that you're a criminal even they said that Timothy McVeigh is a nut. He's talking about shooting ATF agents. That is, wow, this could be a domestic terrorist, not a nut. That's what I mean. Do you know the the important distinction that I'm making, Mr. Gumble?
5: No, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I, you know, I think I think that there's certainly a lot of truth to that. You know, and um, you know, it goes a little bit beyond what. My job was in, in doing this book in terms of drawing those kinds of conclusions. But um, uh, And what I mean by that is just, you know, I'm interested, you know, I was very interested in looking at mm. the specific circumstances rather than pulling back and looking at the broader social picture. But I, I think it's a very reasonable conclusion to draw for sure. And, you know, I've worked on other projects uh, where I was talking to fewer white people, a lot of white people involved in, in reporting on their Oklahoma City bombing. Um, you know, so I'm keenly aware of you know issues elsewhere in American society and how they are handled in a very different fashion, absolutely.
0: For sure. I just, before I get to the Turner Diaries and all, the reason that I'm going broader with regards to the patterns of enforcement officers in terms of how lax they are in dealing with individuals classified as white when it comes to firearms and suspicion. I'm going broad because you see this pattern over and over and even the response sometimes is very similar both with Columbine where man this is this is obstruction of justice which is the same word I would use for Oklahoma City like you have all these documents and you don't turn them over. That's obstruction of justice. That is a crime unless I've been misinformed and to just see that pattern over and over with people who are entrusted you are supposed to be seeking truth that is justice and to see obfuscation failure to you said you had to grapple and fight to get all these records to even access because they're not even made public that's the same thing they did in Columbine. we got to wait till 2027 to get thousands of documents that still have not been released we got to wait it was about four years a little less than four years now that's that's why I'm going. Even CoinTel Pro, redactions. You've been spying on all these people for all these years. And you have to. Go. Bill Russell just passed away. You got to go and beg. Can we get the records? And then you got to dig. And you know about that. You even wrote about. it. You got to dig through redactions and try and piece together information. So that's why I'm going very broad. That this is not just a one-time right. or ten-time. This is a generations of lying and obfuscating about really critical information. Again, am I being logical, reasonable?
5: I think that's right. I think, you know, the only thing I would say is that there are different reasons and different motivations that feed into that.
0: Um And,
5: you know, that interests me is, is to sort of understand the texture of it. So, you know, just to give you an example of another way in which the federal government felt, you know, it wasn't that they were seeing a problem and deciding they were going to disregard it, but one way in which they felt weakened. Um, so during the 1980s, there were a couple of very violent far-right groups. One was called the Order. They ended up um, being besieged on Whidbey Island off Seattle. And there was another fire, much like at Waco. Um, and the ringleader, a man named Bob Matthews, died in that fire. Um, but, you know, broadly speaking, um Federal law enforcement were, were extremely aggressive in going after them, finding them, you know, maybe a little too aggressive, but they, they did find them and catch them, took them very seriously. And then there was a second group called um, the CSA, which, which operated out of Arkansas, and there was a federal government siege of their compound in Bull Shoals Lake in Arkansas, which ended peacefully. They managed to get everybody to walk out, surrender. Um, they actually, funnily enough, used the, the pastor of Elohim City, Pastor Millar, to, to act as a go-between. But, um, law, federal law enforcement handled that very well. Um, they understood that they didn't want to just have everybody killed. They needed to take them, uh, in one piece, talk to them, find out what the extent of the movement was, you know, eliminate the threat more broadly. And they did that very well. Then at the end of the eighties, there was a trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where 13 members of the radical far right, the top leadership, were all put on trial for sedition. Um, and it turned into a disaster. The main witness for the prosecution was the ringleader who had been at Bull Shoals Lake. He was known, he was disliked within the radical far right. and The perception was that he was testifying to save his own skin rather than to tell the truth. Um, the judge in the case, you know, seemed to have quite a lot of sympathy for the ideology of the defendants, handpicked the jury himself. The jury was all white. One of them married one of the defendants. Another one, I think, got engaged to one of the defendants. Anyway, bottom line, the sedition charges were thrown out. It was a humiliation for the federal government. And the takeaway that the FBI and the Justice Department took from this was we can't overreach. You know, we have a cultural problem, not just within our own ranks, but, you know, in the country, we can't convince a jury of ordinary Americans in the heartland state that a bunch of guys who are farmers or, you know, people of relatively modest means, you know, whatever comes out of their mouth, we can't convince them that these are people who are going to start a revolution and overthrow the government. That was that was more than we can convince people to do. So the, the problem is not just with law enforcement, but with white culture more generally, and in, at least in certain parts of the country. And so, you know. Part of the reason they were cautious, you know, with Elohim City, with the other indications that something bad was coming, was this sense of we can't just round everybody up and accuse them of overthrowing the government. We have to get them some more specific, more individual crimes. We can't trail them on suspicion that they might commit one of those crimes. that's intelligence work, we have to have reasonable suspicion first. So all these things held everybody back. Um, and was a source of great frustration to a lot of them as well. Um, so you know, a lot of mistakes were made, a lot of institutional problems arise. Um, you know, but if you're going to tell me, yeah, but the bottom line fact is that if they were black, they would have handled it differently, 100%. <laughs> but you know, all I want, the point I want to make is that there, there are there are layers and nuances, and there, are, you know, the frustrating thing for me is I, I met, you know, I, I talked to a tremendous number of people who were interested in their own. Self-aggrandizement, lied to me endlessly over the phone until I started reading them from reading them extracts from the official documents. But there were also a lot of people who were really good at their jobs, really dedicated, wanted nothing more than to just get to the bottom of this. Um, and there were a lot of them. And I think it's important not to lose sight of them to understand that they were, you know, as frustrated or as angry or as dismayed. You know, much more so, really, than you or I ever will be, because, you know, they felt this was their vocation, this was their livelihood, and they felt they were being stopped from doing their best work. And it was a source of tremendous frustration and a big part of the reason why, you know, 10, 15 years after the bombing, they they wanted to talk to someone and they talked to me.
0: Context of white supremacy. I will certainly add, I am certain There were a number of folks, if they had the opportunity, would have done all they could have to have saved those 168 lives and or would have done everything they could have to prosecute everybody uh, who's supposed to be uh, convicted, tried, executed, whatever's supposed to be for their involvement in that plot. Um, I'm certain that that is the case. Uh, Hierarchies say that all the time, that word, hierarchies. Um, And he even said it in the book, just to folks want to encourage him, he said that in the book. It was an all-white jury. He said, no way, no way. They went out and celebrated, put the Confederate flag up and everything. I cracked up laughing in the book about that, but that is white culture, I'm sure that's another one. If they had been non-white, they would have been convicted, too. Uh, Turner Diaries. Okay, it's in here. Multiple times, and this I'm so glad that we read this book and years we read this book the same year your book was published that is crazy. two thousand twelve Obama did his victory lap after stomping Mitt Romney in the election, so it comes up the first time uh well one of the first times uh in the text this is in chapter five War Fever. McVeigh and Nichols also delved into white supremacist literature. McVeigh read the Turner Diaries first, then passed it on to Nichols, Fortier, and anyone else in the unit he thought might be receptive. They were radicalized by the book's revolutionary spirit more than its breathtaking racism. Still, McVeigh and Nichols had grown up in places where there was a casual disdain for blacks, Jews, and foreigners, and they were uncomfortable around many of the African Americans in their unit. They weren't beyond cracking jokes about negras and porch monkeys as McVeigh freely acknowledged in his prison interviews before he was out of uniform. McVeigh also signed up with the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. How did you assess that they were not so enamored with the racism of the Turner diaries as it was the so-called revolutionary spirit.
5: I think just looking at their
0: actions and where they put their energies,
5: um, that was I, I think you know the, the main the main reason for, for writing that, that they were very. Their obsession was with the corruption of McVeigh. Let's talk about McVeigh specifically. His obsession was with the corruption of federal law enforcement. What he felt was the unconstitutional militarization of the FBI, the ATS, and other agencies. He kept a file of instances where drug enforcement, ATF, etc., had, had raided people's homes, had acted with undue force. And by the way, this is a real thing, you know, that there was um, there was a militarization of law enforcement. You know, at, at Waco, they used Bradley fighting vehicles in, in the siege. Um, and those were the vehicles that McVeigh had driven in the Gulf War. And he was a soldier fighting in that war. And that shocked him. Um, and I think, you know, there's room for people across the political spectrum to share that, you know, that discomfort. Um, and the consequences of that, um, they will part company with him when it comes to the prescription and, and what he proposed to do in, in retaliation. Um, but you know, he, his, his, his target, you know, the, the, the Turner Diaries, and then there's another book, uh, by the same author by William Pierce called Hunter, which is about a sharpshooter who goes around assassinating mixed-race couples Um, you know there was plenty of material within those books that McVeigh devoured that could have led him down the path of racial hatred targeting people of different races and so on and so forth where he put his energy was in focusing on the nature of the federal government deciding it was corrupt deciding that ordinary citizens and soldiers like him had to fight back against that corruption And, you know, his fellow travelers were very much from the world of the racist far right. But, you know, his energy and his actions were not focused on on those racial ideas. Um, They were focused very much on combating, um, you know, very much the ideas that the far right talks about today after January 6th, you know, looking at the founders and, and, and interpreting the founding documents, say. We need to be vigilant against government corruption, and if necessary, take arms against it. Very much that aspect. and it comes from that the same political culture as the racism, and the the the, the ideologies that the gave rise to slavery and segregation in this country. But it, his focus was not there; it was on it was on sort of the sister part of that ideological worldview.
0: I'm going to come right back to the Turner Diaries. I didn't even know Dr. William Pierce had written this other book, Hunter, where he he's, he's hunting. That is Joseph Paul Franklin. I was stunned uh, when have to put that on the reading list. Hunter, Dr. William Pierce right. had me. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm skipping just because you went over his time in the military talking about uh, McVeigh you wrote in the book get my brownie points for our introduction, Uh, you wrote I'm skipping, this is in chapter 4, war fever I was right there anyway Uh, this is his time in Iraq, talking about McVeigh this went on for four straight days when McVeigh wasn't manning his gun, he took hundreds of photographs of corpses and mangled Iraqi equipment James Rockwell, the unit's supply sergeant, was given several as keepsakes one of them, Rockwell said, was an of an Iraqi soldier sitting in a deuce and a half truck that had been bombed. The guy was literally burned like a piece of toast, but his hands were still on the steering wheel. McVeigh and his comrades were high on killing. This is somebody who had a methamphetamine problem, but high on killing. If it's in front of us, Dies was one infantry company's slogan. McVeigh nicknamed his Bradley Bad Company after the rock song he liked to blast through the vehicle. The crew sang along to the lines about killing in cold blood and fighting gun in hand till the day I die. On the second day, McVeigh wowed everyone with his gunnery skills using just a single round to hit two Iraqi soldiers dug in at a machine gun emplacement a thousand yards away. He hit the first man in the chest obliterating his upper body and leaving a red vapor trail where his head used to be. The episode became legendary across the 16th Infantry, earning McVeigh an Army Commendation Medal that was one of five awards he won by the end of Operation Desert Storm, including the Bronze Star. He was described As an inspiration to his fellow platoon members and a credit to the Army, the most lavish praise he had received over his brief and troubled life, and it stemmed from his skills as a killer of devastating efficiency. That is Oxford education in the writing but I didn't know any of this about old Timothy McVeigh wow now we talked about white culture before all of this reeks of white culture I've heard this before making ornaments out of people that you've killed same thing with the lynching we were high off of killing that what, what do you think? Does this have some remnants? Some, can we make a, a broad brushstroke here, Mr. Gumbel?
5: Well, I think actually more the you know I think what this speaks to is is U.S.
3: military culture,
5: um, and you know there is there is you know this notion that a good soldier is somebody you know who kills on command, and I think that was a lesson that they took forward in seeing himself as a good soldier who was fighting against a corrupt government afterwards. I also think, you know, it's pretty clear to me from that experience and others that McVeigh was in some fashion traumatized by his experience of combat. You know, what I go on to describe a little later on in the chapter is evidence that McVeigh was responsible for shooting, surrendering soldiers, which is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. Uh The members of his unit did likewise. Um, and, you know, there was a sense of excess. And, you know, these Iraqi, you know, on the one hand, they expressed sympathy to the Iraqi conscripts who who were being sent like lambs to the slaughter to, to, to do the fighting for Saddam Hussein. On the other hand, he participated in that, you know, clearly to, a, to an extensive degree. And I think he, you know, I can't get inside his head, um, but I think it's clear from the record that he struggled with that very much afterwards you know he he both relished the act of killing but also and became inured to it and also was appalled by it and appalled by the context and you know the lesson he drew from it was that it was once again a corrupt government that was using the forces of the u.s army for purposes that it was not intended to be used under the under the constitution as it was drawn up so you know he turned his own personal trauma and discomfort from that experience into a political uh, call to action um, in a different context. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not persuaded that the, you know, that military culture is exclusive to, to white military culture. You know, I've never served in the U.S. military, so I can't say for sure. Uh, but there was certainly a tremendous diversity of soldiers fighting in the Gulf War and they all did the same thing. You know, I actually was a reporter in Kuwait after the first Gulf War and drove on that road to Basra, you know, the road that the Iraqis retreated along and saw the burnt out tanks. I don't think there were any bodies left. Um, by the time I came along, it was a couple of months later. But it was a, you know, it was, it was a devastating and horrifying sight of, of an army that had been just pummeled into annihilation as they were just trying to get out and again these were conscripts these were not the political operatives these were not people who were directly responsible for the decisions that caused kuwait to be invaded in the first place Um, and you know i know that the soldiers who were responsible for that you know covered every every category of u.s soldier um you know where that culture comes from i don't pretend to know but i i think it's about
0: military culture rather than about white culture in, in that
5: in particular instance is what i would say
0: i guess just for clarification your credentials uh, as a journalist impressive uh the individuals classified as iraqis are these individuals non-white <laughs> yes they are well that is of course you know a whole
5: other category of problem you know Of if you look at who the united states has you know demonized as its enemies over the last several decades and who it's fought wars against you know obviously um a lot of brown people
0: mm. for sure for sure bragged about that as well i'm just pointing that out and so if these are non-white people the iraqis i'm very aware uh There is a long history in all branches of the U.S. Armed Services of white supremacy, racism, uh, them not allowing black people to serve. Or if they do serve, they have to clean the latrines. Uh, Emmett Till's father even being lynched while he is serving during World War Two. I am not aware of at any time black people or non white people, period, were in charge of any branch of the U.S. Army and they didn't allow white people to serve. Or the white people had a really tough time. To my knowledge, the U.S. armed services, all branches, have since inception been white-dominated. Is that evidence-based, logical, Mr. Gumble? Do you have any evidence to the contrary?
5: Uh, I mean, I'm sure that's true. You know, I, I, I'm, it's not an area I'm an expert in, but that that certainly sounds right to me.
0: Okay, that's that's the culture, and that military culture that I'm submitting is white-dominated. White culture, it is so beyond. You even talk about in the book part of this Bill Clinton, first president in many, many decades who didn't serve in the military. White culture. Why did the. Are you familiar with the, uh, how would I, book film, American Sniper? Chris Kyle? Yes. Okay. They released it on Christmas Day, 2014, December 25 white culture and i I mean i could pick pile those up but i mean that celebration patent that celebration of service in the military where you can get a rifle be a killer notch those kills that is white culture and it's beyond service because that same behavior you go out and you kill and then you take trinkets of the non-white people you've killed that's scalping that's what i said lynching gotta castrate and put knuckles yep. or testicles in a jar and save trinkets and such and, and keep these for generations that's white cult and to see this all over the world that's what Sarah Bartman can we get her remains returned oh, yeah, 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 yeah. that's white cult that's why I'm going very broad because I mean that, how much of this do you need to see repeated before it's oh, okay this is yeah white culture celebrated in fact they make jokes and brag about this behavior sometime. Am I being logical, Mr. Gumble? <laughs> sure. Just don't let me, you know, be confounding folks and giving out incorrect information, particularly on this subject matter, because you spent so many years yeah. researching. I learned so much. I, I didn't even know uh, William Pierce's other book. Speaking of William Pierce, now get back to the Turner Diaries. Oh, my God. So this is on right the book you write on September 13, 1994, President Clinton, no military service, approved a 10-year assault weapons ban, and McVeigh wondered if he hadn't been plunged into the opening chapter of the Turner Diaries, in which passage of a repressive new gun law inspires the beginnings of a white supremacist resistance movement. Nichols said McVeigh experienced the weapons ban as a prophecy coming true before his very eyes there and then McVeigh started driving around Kansas looking for bags of ammonium nitrate. He needed 80 or 90 bags for his bomb but he never found more than a few at a time. Nichols chalked this up to McVeigh's city mind and told him to go to a farm co-op he even told McVeigh how to look up one in the yellow pages that's at least one co-conspirator Wow, response to this, and if the ban expired, this is the second time since we've been talking about Columbine that this assault weapons ban comes up. As oh my, again, white gun culture, where it inspires white people to all sorts of. In this, that I was stunned. I had never heard that. This, this was a key motivating factor for McVeigh. The the brief ten-year assault weapons ban that has long since expired.
5: Right. I mean, you know, I think he was very influenced by a variety of different pop culture influences as well as his own political ideas. And I think when, you know, he'd read the Turner Diaries, I don't know how many times he'd sold it at the gun shows. It was his favorite book. And, you know, also, when he sees this old weapon ban being passed, it does make him feel like he's in the world of the book. Um, And I think, you know, interestingly, after Waco, which is the other big motivator for him, you know, the Waco siege and even the end of the siege was not the decisive uh, motivator for him. What was was a conspiracy theory video that was put out called Waco, the big lie that came out a few months later that pulled together all the pieces and made the argument that the FBI had deliberately set fire to the compound. It killed everybody on purpose, which, you know, multiple investigations have later shown not to be the case. Um, but they believed it. So, you know, in, in, he was at Waco himself during the siege. He was not there at the end, but he was there during it. Um, so the evidence of his own eyes was not as powerful a motivator as something that was out and made by other people. You know, a video uh, a book he'd read and i think you know to understand his psychology and i think this is something that he has in common with the columbine killers you know to understand himself as a performer within american popular culture is a very powerful um was a very powerful idea for him in just the same way that eric harris and, and and dylan klebold i think Thought of their act as something that would be on TV. It would be something that would in, insert them into the popular culture um, in, in a similar way. And that sort of, you know, I think that living in one remove, not living quite in the real world, but living in a kind of fantasy world of action and uh, audience driven, uh, spectacular action is something that, that the killers all had in common.
0: I didn't know about this case very much until I read your book. He had his shirt on with the tree of justice. And he's got the quote from the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. That's very much in the vein of what they did. They had their special shirts to get all gussied up for their cowardly act. And he had his right. They did the same thing. They had their writings that they wanted to leave behind to explain why they did all this in their tapes. And he had the same thing, had his little keepsake with his documents and what have you to Waco. I think being a part of that to explain why he was, you know, doing all that. Oh my God. There's so much. Oh, that's why I said all of these events need to be looked at together. And that's why I'm going very broad because there is so much over. There is a documentary series called zero hour where they did one where they have many seasons, but they did one segment on the Oklahoma city bombing they did a different segment on the Columbine bombing, failed bombing. They got the same actor to portray Eric Harris and Timothy McVeigh. They do not. All right, interesting. I mean, that's what I said. They don't even look alike. Eric Harris is 17. He's under six feet tall. Like, he does not look like Timothy McVeigh at all. But the ethos. Whew, same person zero you can check for yourself but it's the same and he does kind of look a little anyway uh, you I wanted I was so looking forward to getting you to break this down for us Mr. Gumbo. this is also chapter 5 so you're writing about McVeigh in 1993 Buffalo we talked so much about Peyton Gendron and the Topps massacre there is so much overlap in that case as well seeing yourself as some sort of pop culture Icon. I'm gonna be seen. I'm gonna be a celebrity. So let me record this while I'm doing it. And ooh, I can. Getting back, so you're right. McVeigh was also coming unstuck from mainstream society. Quitting the military left him with few enviable options. It was not a good time to be a white working class man. The Buffalo area was depressed, and the only work he found was a minimum wage security guard. On the side, he joined the National Guard Reserves and found a part-time job at a gun store. It was not a good time to be a white working class man. Why was that, Mr. Gumbel?
5: Um, Because manufacturing industry was falling apart. The economy was in recession. That particular part of the country was, was especially hard hit. Um, and, you know, this is part of a phenomenon that started in the 1980s um, and has continued, you know, right up to fueling some of the uh, resentments and and and, and frustrations that, that led to the election of Donald Trump. You know, it's, it's the traditional role for work, white working class men in this country has been eroded or disappeared. And, you know, it's important to point out that there are a number of new things that have come along that have provided opportunities for a lot of people, but there are a tremendously large number of other people who have not had those opportunities. You know, so the kind of career that, that McVeigh's father had or other white working class guys in Buffalo, they would have got to work in a the factory, they would have, you know, maybe got a union job, they would have had benefits, they would have had stability that world disappeared, you know, and I think the end of the Cold War sort of marked the the, the, the very end of that because the defense industries uh, that had propped up a lot of those jobs until the late 1980s, they started to fall apart as well. So, you know, he couldn't find stable employment. He was a war hero, but there was nothing really for him when he came home. Um, and, you know, I think there was a sense of something that, The ideology of American society had led someone like McVeigh to believe that he was entitled to, in exchange for his service to his country and his achievements to that point, and it just wasn't available. And that created this chain of, you know, it was it was a contributing factor to his, you know, psychological breakdown and his his turn towards towards violent action. And you know, when I say all of this, you know. it's not to say that other groups in American society haven't suffered as well. Of course they have, but I do think there is a very specific culture of white working class, um, you know, Protestant culture in this country that has fuel, you know, it's, it's, it's a culture that thrives on the bitterness that comes from defeat. And you can even go back to the end of the civil war, you know, the, the, the white Southern, you know, view of the world um is one of you know lost opportunity uh lost cause um economic struggle and a feeling that somebody is responsible and they need to get even with even with them you know obviously in the south there have been waves of that and it's come and gone and i think you know you're seeing a lot of that same affect in the upper midwest in places like buffalo ohio um Michigan, Wisconsin, where you saw the rise of the militia movement in the 1990 s and you saw the rise of the Trump movement in the two thousand and
0: tens that 's right. I do remember that they were stunned over Michigan when he carried in two thousand and sixteen that we did think Trump was going to win back in two thousand and sixteen get a little dirt off. Thank you, dr. Wellsing. She would have loved your. Book. I did. I tried to check <laughs> online. I think she would have. She totally would have. Uh, did especially some of the gun parts. Did I couldn't find it online. Danielle Hunt. She worked at the Alfred P. Murrah Building and had this contact with McVeigh. Is she a white woman or non-white? I couldn't. She find is. That. Yeah. No. She she ran she ran the daycare center
5: until just a few weeks before the bombing. Okay. okay. Um. And. She was in her office in December of 1994, and her husband, Tom Hunt, was in charge of security for all the federal buildings in downtown Oklahoma City. He worked for the federal government, Um, and McVeigh comes in using an alias, saying that he's a military guy who's about to move to Oklahoma City, and he wants to find a place for his kids, Um, and all he asks about is the security arrangements in the building and and in the daycare center. And she found that really bizarre. And then her husband, she she called, I think, her husband, who came up and basically took one look at this guy and decided he was up to no good and and chased him out of there. Um, So when the bombing happened, um, Danielle Hunt, first of all, she knew all these kids like her own kids because she had been with them day in, day out until just very recently before. So, of course, she was completely devastated by what had happened. And the new operator of the daycare center did not know the kid yet because it had been so recent. So she was the one who had to go to the morgue and identify the morgue. Can you imagine? Um, and then she also told the FBI there was this guy who came in a few months ago and he was asking all these weird questions. And it could have been a tremendous lead for them. And they didn't take it seriously they didn't, you know, I only found out, she told me first of all, that she had told the FBI this. And then I went through all the files because I had the entire archive and found her FBI interview where indeed this is exactly what she says, but she was never called as a witness at trial. She was never called back. They never acted on her lead as a way of furthering the investigation. Nothing.
0: That is stunning. I did not know that as well. And you point out one, like, Wow, that is like, uh, the young people, did they still say mic drop? I don't know if they still say that or not, but I mean, if you can go <laughs> to trial, he knew there's a daycare center. Like, whatever your politics, you're mad about the gun law or Turner Diaries or whatever, but you are aware there's a daycare. There are two-year-olds. They certainly are not responsible for any of this. You can't have a gripe with them. Five-year-olds and very young children, you're aware of this, and <sighs> collateral, that's what he said, military. Collateral damage. Collateral damage. Well, I mean, you know, one of the
5: things that I've established, not as an absolute certainty, but, you know, there is compelling evidence to suggest that the bomb plot, as originally conceived, was to drive the truck with the bomb in it into the underground parking lot that was shared by the federal building and by the federal courthouse next door and at the target, as I mentioned, at the top of the segment was federal judges. And, you know, I've heard this from both sides. I've heard this from law enforcement sources. I've heard this from sources within the far right that, um, for all the meticulous planning that went into the bombing, they overlooked the fact that the truck they rented was too tall to fit into the underground parking lot. And they discover this at 8.15 in the morning when they try and pull it in there. So suddenly there they are in Oklahoma City, with a truck loaded with a bomb (laughs) their plan has gone awry and they don't know what to do next Um, and then the next step as i was told also again by you know both sides both by law enforcement sources and from far right sources
2: was that the next
5: idea was to drive the truck into an alley that was between the federal courthouse and the second courthouse building that was the old bankruptcy court next door to that the thinking being that if the bomb goes off in an alley, it's going to have this sort of echo effect that could pancake both buildings. That had to be aborted because a marshal's truck had just pulled into the same alley to deliver a prisoner for court that morning. And so they rapidly reversed back out of the alley and, you know, they're now on to plan C. And you know, this is, again, this is not confirmed completely, but the, there are indications pointing to this, that it was then McVeigh's idea and McVeigh's idea only to park the truck underneath the daycare center. And he had scoped it out several months earlier as Daniel Hunt testified and could have testified in court, but was not asked to. Um, and he had a very specific idea that he wanted to kill children in revenge for the children who had died at Waco. And, you know, if you want to try and understand why he was arrested alone in a junker car that, you know, he was lucky it got as far as it did out of Oklahoma City, you know, my best interpretation is only an interpretation is that there were others with him. They vehemently disagreed with the idea of targeting the children. When McVeigh insisted they abandoned him, took the getaway car, which was probably a Ford Ranger that was registered to McVeigh's name, of which no trace has ever been found again since. And McVeigh was left with no choice but to drive off in what was intended to be a drop car. It was intended to be a car that would act as a signature for the bombing. It had all the material in there that would give the ideological justification for the bombing and so on and so forth. And he was forced to drive away in that car on his own. Um, that's sort of my best reconstruction of what actually happened that morning. Again, can I swear up and down that's what happened? No. Um, but several sources, you know, on each side of the story have sort of pointed to signs that that is what happened. And in my mind, that's what makes best sense. Because, you know, the FBI, there are a number of things the FBI never been able to explain. And one of them is why was McVeigh driving away from the bombing in a 17-year-old car that had no back license plate, which was made in a sitting duck to be pulled over? And, you know, my best answer is um, the license plate was removed in order to attract law enforcement attention. So they'd find it as a drop car. It was never intended as a getaway car. And that was what he was forced to use. And it was the reason why, indeed, he was pulled over on the highway as he was
3: leaving Oklahoma
5: and arrested initially on uh, traffic charges and on gun possession charges. And then, you know, at the very last minute, he was about to be released because they couldn't hold him for more than 48 hours when the FBI pieced together the fact that he was more than likely to bomber. So, you know, the fact that he, you know, if that analysis is correct, then the fact that he went for this you know absolutely cold hearted target of of, of killing preschool aged children um causes co-conspirators to abandon him, put him in a car where he was going to get caught and ended up to him you know ended up with him being in custody um it it's sort of a, it, it's an extraordinary chain of events um and it makes you realize that you know had things gone a little differently had they planned things a little better had they been a little more careful about how tall this rotor truck was Um, it's possible none of the bombers would have been caught
0: wow now that is staggering wow context of white supremacy I have to think on that one for a minute what just inches talk about that a matter of inches and they even have witnesses who say that they saw them struggling like oh darn the truck won't fit. We did all this planning and inches off, just like the Columbine. But we did all this planning and oh, no, the bombs. Don't, uh you even talk about in the book now, dang, some aspects of this. Wow. They do almost take down the whole building. 168 casualties. All of these children at the daycare center. They even do cause some damage to the court building as well. Uh, wow like Timothy McVeigh is not really a skilled bomb maker how exactly did all of this come together looking at some one of the big premises of this book were there other white people who helped him do this in the construction and they were allowed to walk scot-free one of the folks that you say hey this guy maybe should have been looked at a little bit tougher and even the person who said man this book is so informative he read it because Columbine Dylan Klebold was supposed to go to college in Arizona. He said, dang, Arizona figures so hugely in this book. Like, dang, I didn't know Timothy McVeigh was hanging out in the desert like that. Stephen Colburn. You write, in Arizona, the FBI was told that Colburn, a federal fugitive with a biochemistry degree and a fascination with explosives, kept the mailbox with the same service McVeigh used in Kingman, The tip was not correct, but by the time the FBI established that, it had learned that Colburn had been under ATF investigation for months because he was suspected of possessing guns again, a 50 caliber Browning machine gun, and the more the FBI dug the faster he shot up their suspect list I'm skipping a little bit you continue the FBI and the justice department did not pursue this meaning Colburn just as they did not pursue the possibility that Colburn owned an enormously dangerous 50 caliber machine gun the deal that prompted Colburn's release as a bombing suspect did not say anything about this gun. Amazing. Despite evidence, he had bought ammunition for it from Moore and Anderson, the candy shop owners. The gun never came up in any of Colburn's subsequent dealings with the criminal justice system and was never recovered. Are you out of your Black Panther mind? Colburn's lawyer, Richard Hanawalt, called it the 800-pound elephant in the room that's what i mean about broad brush white power and this guy walked free no nothing right well you know um
5: let me backtrack a little bit so if we're looking at you know who might have helped mcveigh and nichols build a bomb steve colvin was obviously somebody who law enforcement considered very seriously because he had the skills he knew mcveigh um and, you know, what happened, it's important then to, to understand what happened with Steve Colburn, you have to understand the context of what was going on in the investigation as a whole. They caught up with Steve Colburn in early June, so four, five, six weeks after the bombing. Um, they had been looking for a John Doe too. you know, there's somebody who'd been seen on the morning of the bombing with McVeigh, who may have been a second person who also rented the rider truck. There's, there's, there was a confusion, partly deliberate confusion between those two different uh scenarios um but in any case there was there was a public perception there was another suspect out there and for several weeks the FBI looked and looked and looked and they got pretty unlucky they, they 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 couldn't figure out who this other person might be and then in early June the justice department made a determination um you know the longer we keep looking for somebody else the longer we tell the public there's somebody else out there the more it dilutes our case against McVeigh, which is already pretty weak in a number of respects. And what I mean by weak is they were having a very hard time placing him in the different places they needed to have him uh, for the conspiracy to make sense. And they were particularly having difficulty placing him in those, in, in those different locations alone. You know, On the morning of the bombing, McVeigh was seen by 24 different eyewitnesses, but every single one of those eyewitnesses saw him in company with somebody else. So the government had a problem, you know, if, if they're going to call those witnesses at trial and all those witnesses says, yeah, he was with somebody else and the government can't say who that other person was, it dilutes their case. The same was true of these leads in Arizona. They were looking at a number of different leads in Arizona, of which, you know, Colton was by far the most promising. And there was a sense that. You know, well, we have some evidence against him, but we can't put it all together. The most promising piece of evidence was um, there was a sighting in Oklahoma City on the morning of the bombing of a brown Chevy pickup that a lot of people had seen. The feds find out that Colburn has a brown Chevy pickup. Um, but when they go to his house and house is a, is a generous term for a trailer where he kept snakes and it was completely filthy. The guy was, you know, lived a very interesting lifestyle. Um, they find the brown Chevy pickup, but it is not operational. It doesn't have wheels on it. It's on bricks. It's in his backyard. And they get eyewitness testimony that it's been there for months or years. So they think, OK, that doesn't work. And they began to be afraid that the case against Colvin was not going to stick. And before any of the investigators on the ground could make that determination, the word came from on high. We're dropping this whole thing. Um, and so they did. And they didn't want to prosecute Colburn for anything because they were afraid that if they got him in court to prosecute him for ownership of the, of the 50 caliber Browning um, facts would start to come onto the public record that would then raise questions of why the hell isn't this guy a, a chief witness, if not also a defendant in the Oklahoma city trade case. So they just buried the whole thing. And, you know, when we said earlier, the government had, Evidence in the case they didn't hand over to the defenseman they should have. Uh, the evidence against Steve Colburn is an excellent example. Uh, McVeigh's lawyers never saw that evidence. Nichols's lawyers in the federal trial never saw that evidence. It only came out in the state trial um, against Nichols uh, much, much later, by which time, you know, any use that could have been made for it to construct a more compelling and more complete theory of, of the bombing was long that that opportunity had sailed.
0: Obstruction of justice, once again, I think that's what they call that, the legal terms. I'm not a scholar of jurisprudence or much else I will add. Uh, folks have a question, star six one, last little bit that we have Mr. Gumbel. I want, oh, man, the, there's so much overlap in these cases, we spoke with Dr. Peter Langman. He is a scholar on nationally respected on school shootings. And yeah, talked, I've read his book. Oh, see, Oxford Education, man, that's what I wanted to talk to you on the program. Uh, we spoke to him last month, about 30 days ago, and he was talking about some of the patterns. You read his book, but he was talking about some of the patterns for people who didn't. It's great, you should read. He has many great books on school shootings. And he talked about some of the patterns. He said, one of the patterns, two that apply here, Gun fetish. Folks that just oh guns, gotta go to the gun show and get more guns and books on guns and ammunitions and explosive thing that is one red flag that uh oh might have to keep an eye on this person if they're unstable or have any extreme ideas or sounding angry and it might have to be mindful, alert, vigilant. The second a uh, problem with masculinity manhood as it were and he talked about Eric Harris he had a chest deformity wasn't so successful with females Dylan Klebold also not successful with females and this pattern went on Adam Lanza was pretty slim in stature uh, for his size and didn't have much musculature widespread pattern I get to Timothy McVeigh Chapter 5, War Fever. Early in the investigation, the FBI thought McVeigh and Terry Nichols might be gay lovers, or at least they had a strong homoerotic bond. Padilla said McVeigh was certainly controlling and possessive of Nichols, almost to the point of jealousy. But that, Padilla said, was as far as it went. McVeigh never approached Terry, you know, in that way. He was always high on methamphetamines. We call it the substance abuse, which is a big theme in the book, I will add. I'm skipping over just because this continues to... St- you write, Anderson denied any such thing. She thought of McVeigh as a son. Still many of McVeigh's friends and acquaintances noticed a pattern. McVeigh would form strong, almost excessive, obsessive attachments to his closest male friends, and then hit on their wives or girlfriends behind their backs. A few months later, McVeigh began dropping in regularly on Michael Fortier, Michael Fortier's then-fiancée Lori at the tanning salon, Dr. Welsing, where she worked. At the same time, McVeigh and Michael Fortier were so tight that Jim Rosencrantz teased his neighbor about having a second wife treated like a second-class citizen, but she also recalled the time Rosencrantz walked in on one of her own conversations with McVeigh and accused him of making a move on her. There are two schools of thought about McVeigh's sexuality. The first says he was a highly ascetic person who sublimated whatever sexual energy he had into his war on the government. Sex either did not interest him or scared him because he was unsuccessful at it. Much later when he was on death row in Indiana, his fellow inmates nicknamed him Virgin McVeigh. But there is also evidence he was highly interested in sex and grabbed it wherever he could. Beyond his mar- beyond this. Beyond his flirtations, he almost certainly had a brief affair with Marief Nichols in the summer of 1994. Marief testified about it at trial, and Terry Nichols subsequently confirmed he had been betrayed by his wife and best friend, McVeigh. This guy is a real stand-up dude. (laughs) Anyway, McVeigh seems to have viewed sex, much as he viewed his need for food, as a craving to satisfy efficiently so he could get on with something more interesting to stave off his appetite, he often resorted to military MREs, or meals ready to eat. To assuage his interest in sex, he looked for people he could use quickly and discreetly. Rosencrantz told the FBI McVeigh was always talking about getting a piece of ass and was even willing to pay for it. Rosencrantz described him as weird, quiet, and clean guy wow i don't even wow uh what what to even make of timothy mcveigh and manhood well i think you know
5: beyond what i wrote there which i would stand by completely i think you know one way to understand mcveigh's view of sex is as an instrument of power that he used it to manipulate his friends. Um, and, you know, he was very much, if, if you read the relationship between him and Nichols and listen to what Terry Nichols has to say about it, Nichols definitely felt that McVeigh manipulated him from day one. Um, and Nichols didn't have the wherewithal to stand up to him in a number of crucial respects and obviously has lifelong regrets about having gone along with the bomb plot to the extent that he did. I, I, I don't think if he had a chance to do it over again, he would have. Um, and some of that was to do with, you know, threats to his family. Some of it was the way he manipulated him through his wife, uh, Mary Faye. Um, so that's, you know, one side of McVeigh and sex and power and what he was up to. The other incident, which you didn't mention, which I feel compelled to, is the FBI found evidence. Um, of a gay relationship that McVeigh had in Arizona, uh, with a guy who picked him up one night as a hitchhiker. Um, and the, the description of the relationship is, is absolutely extraordinary. You know, there was a moment at which, um, McVeigh reaches over to grab the guy by, by his crutch and says, you know, do you want to have a penis party? Um, and in my mind you know the the penis parties in the desert is is what sticks in my mind but it 's very much you know that i don 't think was an it was a relationship based on manipulational power, but I do think it fits that pattern of you know the meals ready to eat concept of sex you know you grab it, you do it, you move on um but it is It is an extraordinary episode that I'm sure McVeigh with his radical far-right friends would not not have wanted to advertise because, you know, there were members of that crowd who believed that homosexual acts were um, acts worthy of condemnation to death. Um, And there were a lot of there was a lot of closeted behavior going on in that world. But one of the more extraordinary things I discovered from the government files was was the FBI's discovery of of this gay liaison in the desert. And by the way, the FBI agent who found it, first of all, he interviewed the guy seven times, uh, which betokens an extraordinary level of interest by the FBI. That's seven times more, by the way, than the FBI talked to some of the key figures in the radical far right who were probably the inspirations behind the bombing. But that aside, um, the agent who found this out was Kenneth Williams, who was also the agent who discovered that the 9/11 um, attackers were attending flight schools and wanting to learn everything except how to land. And he passed that along, you know, in the summer of 2001, and was disregarded. You know, another instance of institutional blindness, um, for all kinds of reasons, you know, a different set of reasons with 9 11, but very similar institutional structural problem of, you know, good agents finding, finding out interesting things and then it goes nowhere. Um, but in terms of McVeigh and sexuality, that was, you know, I, I, it was certainly not the most significant thing I found in my research, but it was, it was, it was one of the more jaw dropping things that I found.
0: It was not the first thing that I asked, so hey, I have my priorities correct. But
1: wow, I uh,
0: and don't you think I did highlight uh, Richard Rogers and that desert incident? Yes, sir, Buddy, I did have it highlighted. But gosh, how can right. you? Um, what what uh, you said, sex scared him because he was unsuccessful at it. Hmm. I mean, this is, you know,
2: what I wrote
5: was based on, you know, all the different things that people who knew McVeigh said, um, either to me, but in, in more often in their interviews with the FBI. You know, I, I wouldn't pretend to, to know with any authority what, what, what McVeigh's psychological frame of mind was around sex. But, you know, the the record shows that he used it, you know, either in a, in a kind of utilitarian way or as a means to power and manipulation over his friends.
0: With, I would say that with Terry Nichols, Marif as well. If he had this uh, affair with her, that's uh, Terry Nichols' wife. Uh, oh, absolutely.
5: Can, it, was a, it Yeah, it was the absolute statement of ownership. It's like, I own you. I can have your wife anytime I want. Mm. And she's
0: also Is she non-white, Marif? She was, she's from the Philippines, yeah. Okay. With that, yeah. Power, domination, exploitation. Um The I forgot to bring it up. That was so important when you were talking about the numerous witnesses who said, yes, I saw someone who looked like McVeigh, but they were with multiple people. The person who comes to bring the Chinese food says, well, McVeigh didn't even answer the door. It was this other guy. The term I'm just going by memory to see how well I read. Is it hammering where the prosecution they go to these witnesses? And no, you didn't see two people. No, you didn't. You got to be mistaken. Is that it?
5: Well, that's right. So in the run-up to trial, the government had to decide, you know, how many of these witnesses to be caught. Um And the decision, they, you know, what they did was they had one FBI agent who was being directed by one of the prosecutors who went around a number of the key witnesses and tried to bully them into changing their testimony to say, well, we saw him away alone, or I was mistaken when I said I saw him with somebody else, or it was a confusion. It was a mistaken identity. And a lot of these witnesses, to their credit, wouldn't buckle. They said no. I saw what I saw. You can tell me as many times as you like that I didn't see it, but that's my testimony. And you either take my testimony or you don't. And the government ended up not calling most of those people. Um, Which again speaks to the dilemma they had. You know, if you think of this, if your job as a prosecutor, you've been told by Janet Reno, the attorney general, who's hearing it from the president, you know, we need to get convictions. Um, you're under tremendous pressure and i'm not defending that um that it was you know some of those prosecutors took that pressure in an honorable fashion and worked hard and tried to figure out the case as best as they could some of them chose to cut corners or be dishonest or withhold evidence from the defense you know it all happened um because they understood that the case against mcveigh was was relatively weak and go wrong very easily and they got lucky in a couple of respects uh, trial lawyer did not do a good job at all which was very beneficial to the government Um, and you know the, the talented members of the team managed to do a very good job of using emotional testimony of the horrible suffering and death that occurred as a result of the bombing as a way of you know keeping the jury emotionally engaged and giving them a you know as much of a reason as possible to say, you know, even if you have doubts about details of the evidence against McVeigh, you know, you could be sure he was, he was the bomber and you need to convict him and, you know, don't ask too many other questions. And that worked because they returned not only a guilty verdict, but they also voted for the death penalty. Um, but, you know, had they been given the full picture as, as it was known to the government, it's, not so clear that they would have come to the same conclusion. You know, I think it's eminently reasonable they would have found him guilty, but whether they would have voted for the death penalty is another question.
0: Now that I based was, on you know based oh, on sorry. the
5: strength of the evidence, I should say you know
0: my fault didn't mean to interrupt. Um, that I was just going to say that I was stunned because I had I, I was ignorant about the case, so it's not like I was an expert or anything. But I was stunned yeah. to think. All of that, and if he had had maybe more adequate defense or if they had a better relationship or both, uh, he could still be alive. He could have just got the same thing as Terry Nichols, life in prison. Well,
4: who-
5: his, the, num- the number two lawyer who became his lead counsel after – after Stephen Jones was the name of his trial counsel uh, after Jones quit – Uh, fell out with McVeigh and he quit. And then his final lawyer was a, a man named Rob Nye, who, who's based in Tulsa. Excellent lawyer. Um, argued as hard as he could for McVeigh to be kept alive, not so much as a matter of justice, but also as a matter of, um, as a matter of investigative interest. You know, that McVeigh still had things to tell investigators about the bombing that, that they didn't know yet. Um, none of that worked, unfortunately. Um, but I think, you know, two things, if, if Stephen Jones had done a better job or if somebody else had done the job instead, not only would the trial have looked different, but I think the investigative phase before the trial would have looked very different. You know, the invest, McVeigh's defense team had a unique opportunity to, to do their own digging and to find out things. And um, Stephen Jones spent most of his time and a lot of money traveling around the world pursuing who knows what theory or idea. Um, And it looks an awful lot like, you know, he was traveling around the world for his own entertainment a lot of the time. Um, Did not get into did not get at the bottom of a lot of key questions um, about. The role played by the people at Elohim City about the role played by Louis Beam, who was like the ideological godfather of the radical far right, who McVeigh had been at Waco with in 1993 and they well have met and so on and so forth. You know, all of these things, a competent lawyer with a competent, um, team of investigators could have really made much more headway than Stephen Jones did. And that's a tremendous lost opportunity because you don't get that chance again. You know, time passes. You're no longer in the context of a trial. Um, You don't have the same privileges in terms of being able to call witnesses and so on and so forth. So the fact that Stephen Jones didn't succeed in bringing more of the truth out is an opportunity that we will never get back, unfortunately.
0: Wow, that is. uh, Yeah, that is. And he was, I guess, wanting, he sped things up. You talked about that in the book. I think that part I did know about, that he, Timothy McVeigh, uh, sped things up and didn't want to go through all the appeals because the death penalty can't take years if they, you know, do all the court procedures and exhaust all of your efforts. But he wanted to kind of speed that up, uh, even though I think that was kind of unprecedented. You document some of that. Now that they can hear us, make sure that I get it in. Uh, Lakeisha Levy? Uh, I guess, one, we can clarify, is she a white person or a non-white person? What is the significance of uh, Lakeisha Levy and, I guess, the confusion around her burial?
5: Right. So one of the mysteries um, of the case was that they found, when they, when they pieced together the forensic evidence, and, you know, forgive me for getting into some gruesome details here, the body parts, There was an extra leg that they couldn't account for, Um, and it it got very complicated. And forgive me, you know, from the passage of years, I don't remember the exact details, so I'm not going to give them now over the air. But LaKeisha Levy, as I recall, was a service woman um, who um, perished in the bombing. Um, Here we go. She was yeah, it was a 20 year old Air Force recruit. Um, and she'd been buried with two legs in New Orleans, um, and the extra leg they found appeared to belong to her. Um, and so they applied to exhume her body, I believe, and you know, found that what, there were several problems. Um, mm-hmm. One problem was that the forensic evidence was handled, mishandled horribly. Um, and then there was this problem of the extra leg. <clears throat> And it appeared that the, the, the second leg that Lakisha Levy was buried with was not hers, is the upshot. And they never figured out who this leg belonged to. And the theory that was never fully explored was that it must belong to one of the bombers because nobody in the modern world fails to claim a body part unless they're a criminal. You know, unless there's a compelling reason not not. So there is a theory that uh, whether you call him John Doe two or some other co-conspirator perished in bombing, and you know one of his legs was recovered, but no more. Um, so it's you know one of the enduring mysteries of, of, of the case that's never really been fully explored. And part of the reason it's never been fully explored is having exhumed Lakeisha Levy's body and found that there was still an extra leg. You know they could have kept going and tried to exhume everybody and look at all the body parts that were buried and they just didn't have the heart to do it it's putting the families and you know everybody's loved ones through you know untold grief thought what is essentially a horrible mistake by the fbi evidence recovery teams and they decided they weren't going to do it the
0: cow's context of white supremacy uh one i guess when Timothy McVeigh, I talked about he sped up the process to get to the execution, which was on closed circuit TV for the victims. I didn't know that either. Like, wow, that is, shall I say, macabre at the minimum? You have better education than I. Is there a better word to describe that? Medieval? I don't know.
5: Uh, <laughs> All ghastly.
3: of the above, yes.
0: Ghastly? I don't know. Uh, before he got to that point, you talked about how they formed a clan. At the Supermax facility because there were not that many white people there. I did, in your book, now you called it Celebrity Row. I had read it in Time magazine. They called it Bomber Row because the late Ted Kaczynski and uh, McVeigh were, even Ramsey Youf- Youssef uh, from World Trade Center the first right. time around, were all there. I heard it called Bomber Row. You got Celebrity Row, I guess. That. Even that says something Celebrity Row for bombing. Right. Wow understanding where you fit in in pop culture. But she wrote that they formed kind of a a clan, what I said, because there were not that many white people on death row at the Superman. Right. It
2: was
5: Kaczyns- Kaczynski, McVeigh, and then a man called David Paul Hammer, who was, um, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers, what was it called, Con Air, the movie from the late 90s, mm-hmm. about all the prisoners who go on a transport and then they overtake the plane.
0: Nick Cage. Um,
5: Mills Cage is in it, and John Malkovich plays a character called Cyrus the Virus. And it seems pretty clear to me that Cyrus the Virus was based on David Hammer. Um, he was. He was. Um, anyway, so the three of them, correct? They they formed a sort of a, a friendship, as the you know, the White Killer Society or whatever you want to call it.
0: I find it fascinating that even. And you even have a brief allusion in the book to the Olympic Park bombing and some of the same uh, failures. Uh, In that case, uh, Eric Rudolph was on the lam for years uh, before they caught him. Even Eric Rudolph ends up in Colorado. I was so stunned. That's why I said all of these folks should be looked at in context uh, to kind of grasp all of this. Uh, There was one more passage where I was like, ooh, he can break that one down for us. So this is from Chapter 9, "Aryan Paradise Lost. Uh, where old Straussmere gets booted out eventually. Even that is white power. He gets tipped off. You're not even a citizen. You're not supposed to have firearms. You're implicated in all of this, and you get tipped off, and you get to get out of the country. That white power. Uh, But you write, this is chapter 9, the prosecution team had its own disagreements and strong personalities to contend with. Its members had fundamentally different views of the case from the Hawks who wanted to paint McVeigh and Nichols every shade of black to more subtle minds who questioned the degree of Nichols' guilt and wondered who else might be involved. That, I had not heard that phrasing before. Wanted to paint McVeigh and Nichols every shade of black. What, is, what does that one mean?
5: Oh, it just means that they were evil and that was it you know they saw them as like cartoon villains
0: wow okay that's well i had never heard that did they, is that a british phrasing or i don't know they, is that a common phrasing paint them every shade of black
5: i mean I, I i i don't remember what was going through my mind when i wrote it but what it means
0: is, is what i said you
5: know that they there was that they wanted to look at everything they've ever done in their lives and see it through a prism of absolute evil that's what I meant by that
0: I see, I see I I just had never heard that as a, uh, like I guess when people have uh, phrases, uh, it was a black day, like I've heard that one before but wow, that's, that's do, do they have an opposite of that one, do they have like if they want to uh, make sure that someone gets acquainted and we're going to whiten them up, make them as innocent, pure as possible I guess you talk about white knights, right? Hmm. Hmm. That is fascinating. <laughs> that is, that is fascinating. i never even, that's one that I would point to where we so many times with, I guess, like the use of the term fair, where I'll say, if we're going to use the term fair to mean correct treatment, justice, beauty, and white. That that for sure seems to reinforce racism, white supremacy, because it certainly seems to suggest if you are not white, black, you are not beautiful, logical, or deserving of justice, and that seems how things play out frequently. Uh, that that sort of phrasing to to especially if that's what it means to make them as eat to view everything through the prism of wickedness and evilness, <laughs> if that's equated with blackness, like wow, that language of white supremacy, racism. Do you think that qualifies? Um, yeah, I, I,
5: sure. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, yes. I mean, I'll, I'll let you be at the comments on that.
0: Just we pay attention to words. Uh, frequently we have authors and just like words are important. And, and the way that we particularly the way that we use blackness because it's so consistently where blackness is associated with criminality. They don't say the white market when they're talking about some sort of illicit trade in arms or explosive parts, they say the black market. Ah, When they say that individuals frequently classified as white, when they embezzle or what have you, same thing I was talking about before, not saying that Timothy McVeigh is a domestic terrorist. They will say individuals have committed White collar crime. That's sort of the language of racism where it's consistent. White is fair, innocent, pure, godly even. Black is wicked, evil, vile. Do you I mean you're born in Britain? Do you see that same sort of pattern even across the pond?
5: I mean this is this is going way beyond the remit of what we're talking about. Um I'd have to think about it. You know, I mean, if you're asking me, are are there patterns of racism in in British society and British colonial history? Of course, there are. You know, how that plays out is not something I've I've given deep thought to. So I, I'd rather not answer that right now.
0: I see. I mean, you speak English. You've been we've been chatting now for two hours. Just do they have those type of phrase like it was a dark day when something bad happens? Do they have those same type of phrases? Sure. That's all I'm saying. That's. In yeah, my, no. That,
5: there's definitely there, there, there's, there is a there is a emotional and moral component to use of shading and color in in the English language. That is true,
0: for sure. That's all I'm getting at. Some of the related to the phrasing in the book. They were gonna make. They were gonna. Uh, I, I didn't know if that. Like I said, I was just curious. Every shade of black. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think. Uh, 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 uh. Get in all of my questions i think i got it all i guess the eric rudolph that was the only one uh that i said wow that is so similar you just kind of casually mentioned the olympics i know you had a massive project It's probably more you could have included but not even a, a whisper because it seems so so similar and the same white supremacist ilk with eric D- rudolph in the same time period was there a thought to include a maybe a, a quick sentence on him or no just couldn't wait in the book Yes,
5: sir. Well, I'll tell you that the the first draft of the book was twice as long as it ended up. There was Mm. so much material, and we just had to kind of make it a manageable length. So, yeah, the Eric Rudolph story, I've written about Eric Rudolph separately. If anybody wants to Google my name and his, you'll find a a long piece about Eric Rudolph by me. But um, he was not directly, you know, he had no direct involvement in the bombing. So he he had the cutting room floor. (sighs)
0: okay I dang I wish I had looked that up beforehand I'll look that up the piece on Eric Rudolph I'll share uh, once I do my uh, quick search and bang I'll put it on social media and such oh I forgot Jennifer McVeigh I didn't even know he had a sister that'll be my one to defiant she shared his views and he had been over that's his sister she had talked to timothy mcveigh had talked to his sister jennifer had talked to her in advance about his gripes about the government and firearms federal overreach overreach his frustrations about waco he had talked to her about all this so she was not surprised when all of this happens the federal government goes to talk to her she is i use that term all the time in talking to, uh, talking about white people's conduct she is defiant she doesn't want to help them at first is that true
5: yeah, no, it is. I mean, I—it's if, if a—you know—we can talk about this all night. I, I do need to go, actually. Um, so I don't know if we can wrap this up now.
0: Oh, for sure, for sure. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your uh, time with us, Mr. Gumble. I think some of our listeners got bumped off; they couldn't get their question in before. But oh well, they'll be able to listen to the archive easily. Uh, the book we've discussed, uh, Oklahoma City, co-authored. Uh, with our guest, uh, Andrew Gumble, Learned so much Thanks a ton for sharing a bit of your Saturday evening with us, Mr. Gumble. You're more than welcome Have a good one Yes, sir, thank you a lot Okay, bye-bye mm? Context of white supremacy Man, I didn't know We got dumped I don't even know when we got disconnected I'll have to go back to see in the archive Like where we got Because I played the audio I played the audio at the... Uh, Ah, I played the audio at the beginning of the program and I couldn't really see where it got dropped out because I was, you know, doing a. I I had no reason to think we had got disconnected from the uh, live line, but we got disconnected at some point. Thank you to the folks who let me know that they could not hear for the people who were on the phone line. Um, man, man. Ah, anyway, at least it'll be correct for the uh, archive. Oh, well context of white supremacy and thank you to the listener I guess thanks to the people who let me know they couldn't hear on the phone line much obliged until justice at com. thanks to the folks who let me know about the uh, book to begin with because this is another case that I really had not researched uh, you know at all really I can't really say I, someone had given me like a, a question 10 questions maybe on the bombing, I probably would have got, if it had been anything beyond who was engaged in this, Timothy McVeigh, the Nichols brothers, I probably would have not got anything else beyond that. When did it, ha- I could have got that. When did it happen? Mm. That's about it. Maybe they went, I don't, mm Yeah. I don't think I could have got much more. When was he executed? Did he go to Colorado? where did the execution take place? I think I would have probably got F1 all the rest of those questions. Anywho, uh, all a part of our Columbine series. I don't think we would have done the program today at all. I think I can say that with some confidence because the listener who told me about this book referenced it by saying they, all of this was spurred by us studying Columbine and uh, yeah, the connections to Arizona. We talked about some of it, but there's a lot of Columbine uh, overlap with this case. I'd say with Eric Rudolph's case, as well, probably with Timothy McVeigh. Excuse me, with Ted Kaczynski. Uh, as well, the Unabomber would just would just have to do more research on that. When I was trying to do that, once he passed away, just you know, a few weeks ago. Any hootles? Um, I appreciate Mr. Gummel hanging out, spending some time with us. Uh, I will say, hey, uh, system of racism, white supremacy. Anytime we have an opportunity to talk to an informed white person I'm trying to extract as much information as possible so you know hmm. uh for the folks who have been following along in the book club hopefully able to uh see many of the connections similarities between this case and what we spent the last what two months talking about uh with the whole columbine situation uh, and the <laughs> The lack of interest in prosecuting other individuals classified as white who could have been involved. Now, that's totally legitimate what he said about, you know, the Waco situation. We don't want another one of those that upset a lot of people was really embarrassing. Some white people got transferred and, you know, admonished verbally for all of that. White life is important. That's what you had in a lot of those situations. Waco, Ruby, Ruby Ridge, white people perishing in those situations if it had been non-white people I suspect there would have been a different response totally it would not have galvanized all of these white people about government overreach anyway all of that super important but man it would not have been allowed to have all of these when he talked about Elohim City they have whole documentaries online about this place I think this place still exists we're talking about stuff from is that like 30 years ago at this point This place still exists and all these little, what do you, I don't even, what you call them? Uh, Encampments? There might be a better term. I think that's the term he uses in the book. I wouldn't even know what to call them, but uh, areas where individuals classified as white practice racism, white supremacy, and they have either arms set up where they can go out and shoot, practice explosives, prepare for so-called race war and all the rest of that. All of these little enclaves. It would not be some oh, well, we're afraid or we can't do this because we'll get in trouble or the backlash. Mr. Gumble even includes that in the book. Like, dang, some of the white people, enforcement officers classified as white said well, same thing that I'm saying. That's not a valid reason. If you got folks who are either breaking the law Suspected of breaking the law, terrorist activity, accumulating firearms. None of these are things that should be allowed for any reason. And they wouldn't be if they were individuals classified as not white. And the same thing that I said at the beginning, straight line uh, with all of this conduct from the 1990s to where we are right now. Uh, with all of it, really, I mean, with the Turner Diaries, he has it in the book repeatedly about the attacks on the power grid repeatedly is in there where they picked out that part. And some of these very same white people, racists, that's what they called in the book, white supremacists. Got their paraphernalia and all the rest of it and firearms, grenades, all of this. They, too, read the Turner Diaries. And, yes, we can do the attacks on the power grids. This is 30 years ago. I'm so glad we read the Turner Diaries. Folks can check out if they need summer read. So that would be, I guess, three, maybe, for summer reading. You're at the beach trying to beat the heat wave or staying in the house in the air conditioning. Turner Diaries, William Pierce, if you haven't read it, that's fiction. Not super long, that way you can get through quick, relatively, I guess. Uh, the Hunter, I haven't even read that one myself. i got to put that on my summer reading list because I hadn't even heard of that one until I read this book, also by William uh, Pierce, white man. Uh, this book, I would add because so much of it is dealing with white supremacy racism I and mean, all these white supremacist racist groups people that are mad with the federal government and all that even got the part about the racist jokes and all the rest of it. So much of it. And it's the same time period. All of that. If you were in with us with our study for Columbine, all of this is super relevant. Anywho, uh, let's see. Oh, yes, that was why. Normally Saturday we would be doing our compensatory call in, but man, since we're doing our Columbine, said so we might as well try and, you know, learn as much as possible. We should be here on Monday with uh white guest, different white person who also wrote about the Columbine situation. Many as did many, many individuals classified as white mostly, uh, wrote about the Columbine situation. So we'll Revisit that, even do maybe a compare contrast to some of the components that Dave Cullen talks about uh, versus what we've already heard, all that good stuff. Any hoodles. uh Still no excuse not to be paying attention to what happened. news updates all that good stuff over the past seven days i certainly was doing all of that because i had no idea i think i had tried once before we were going to have a guest uh on saturday in lieu of the compensatory call in and then the guest reneged at like the last minute and all that i was really upset i was like we'll never do that again just do the compensatory call in so i was totally uh prepared i'd been doing my collection and paying attention to news and events things that were taking place over the last seven days same as we always would even mention buffalo timothy mcveigh buffalo native talked about that right in the uh, beginning of the program Uh, i'll even get in one news clip related to buffalo that did take place within the last few days uh give folks a chance i guess if they uh were here and were able to hear the broadcast what we were able to talk about folks have thoughts they can share uh for folks who i guess were not able to hear apologies for The tech difficulties had no idea. Folks that were on the line could not uh, hear what we were discussing. But archives should be fine. Quick news segment from something that happened in Buffalo within the last couple of days. And we'll be right back. Context of white supremacy.
1: I'm Kristen Moran in East Buffalo. Families of the top shooting victims, survivors from that day, and lawyers announced at this church that they are filing a 171-page lawsuit against the corporations they feel are responsible for what happened on May 14th. The family members of seven top shooting victims, as well as survivors, are seeking justice more than one year after a racially motivated shooting took 10 of our neighbors. Aaron Salter's wife, Kimberly, was emotional talking about that day inside of Elam Christian Fellowship.
0: It didn't just end on 514.
6: We live this each and every day,
0: each and every moment of the day. I stand here. Still grieving my husband's loss.
1: The family of Ruth Whitfield also sharing their pain Wednesday morning. I can't give her a hug. We can't go fishing or camping. or We can't do
4: anything else ever again. And all of us, all of us are hurting. All of us feel, you know, all of the things that have been said and then
1: some. Now, families impacted by that tragic day want to see accountability, including Zanetta Everhart. Her son, Zaire Goodman, was shot, but survived the attack.
6: Social media gun manufacturers have to be held accountable. Zaire has pieces of those bullets in his body, and they will be there
1: forever. Attorneys Terry Connors and Bed Crump, alongside several other lawyers, filed this lawsuit against big-name companies like Meta, Reddit, Twitch, Google, and YouTube. The gunman's parents are also named in this civil suit that's demanding a jury trial. The influence, the radicalization, the engagement, the enablement that occurred on the Internet is
0: something that has to stop.
1: The lawsuit states that the Buffalo shooter was radicalized by overexposure to racist tropes, themes and content online, and that social media has been integral to the rise of white supremacy. Crum says he believes this will be a landmark lawsuit and hopes the companies who are held responsible will change practices so that this never happens again.
4: This is one step closer to trying to get to justice. This is going to be a long journey and they are prepared. And it is our objective, as we said previously, to make sure that everybody who loaded that gun is held to account.
1: The families of the top shooting victims and survivors are now praying this lawsuit will bring them justice. We
6: are here to make a change. People will know that what happened
1: on May 14th will not be forgotten. Kristen Moran, 7 News.
0: May 14, 2022. Real talk. Maybe we should talk about this all night. I was going to put Let's Go Buffalo at the beginning of this. Not that 168 lives, that would be worthy of discussing this for a long time too, but what happened May 14, 2022 in Buffalo that is also directly, and I mean super straight line related. In fact, when I went to Buffalo, I looked at the top 10 Buffalo events. Two of the 10 top shooting, Oklahoma City bombing. I think I said that before, but that bears repeating just, hey, this didn't even happen in Buffalo. I, in fact, I think the Oklahoma City bombing was higher up on the list in terms of important events for the city of Buffalo. It didn't even happen in Buffalo. I bet you, Peyton Gendron, I bet you he knows. Tim McVeigh. That's my homie. My white, but they said what they just said. Radicalized. Tim McVeigh. Turner Diaries. All of that. The white supremacy propaganda. We said, hey, put some money on the table. Peyton Ginger knows about Joey 22, 22-caliber 22 killer, white terrorist. He had to. Started at the Topps grocery store, had to. He grew up in New York State, how could he not? He researched on, he would have to know a lot of detail, in fact, about both of these white killers. That's why, yep, we could and maybe should talk about this all night I'm just pointing that out as another pattern where we've had white guests where hey man this is all the time you get I got other things to do I'm an important white person cool in the gang but I mean dang I didn't think we were exactly wasting time last question I even got in I forgot Jennifer McVeigh because I didn't even know that I didn't even know if you'd asked I said it would have got an F on the test Jennifer McVeigh what did I say defiant you all can even put that in your own context I'm an only child but I can imagine so I have a sibling male or female I watch on television they bomb a federal building kill children daycare center 168 casualties I don't even know how many injuries and all the rest of it all that they come to you You got your sibling he she they did it we got the evidence we know and in fact your sibling has been telling you up to this oh yeah something's about to happen written all this out and boo 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 I'm mad with the government boom 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 they gonna get it Ruby Fridge, Waco and all of that they come to you badge gun all the rest of it. We need you to cooperate who out there Eh. my black brother <laughs> my black sister nah Keep my, zip in the fifth, uh, nah, nah, take your best shit, nah, got nothing to say. Like, what they cut, start bringing you showing the pictures of the bombing and casualties, legs everywhere, and such. Nah, nah, can't help you. Nah, she he wrote, she shared his views. Like, do what? What does it mean to be white? But that's one you all can think if you got a sibling. They come to you. Your brother bombed the place, killed a bunch of black children. I was going to say black people, which he did, but black children. Even killed a bunch of white children. You going to help us catch this dude? Eh, eh, eh. Let's see. Uh, Folks who have commentary, if you were able to stick with it and hear, bravo. You can share what you heard i guess if you have commentary over the week with that's what we would normally have been doing should have done anyway uh that'll be grand too again my i don't do not know what happened could have been sabotage and interference that has been known happened but we were connected because he and i heard the audio that we started with bad company tim mcveigh's song uh let's see folks who had a hand up y'all have commentary to share should be with us proceed might be heard? Zee's mom. Yes, ma'am.
6: Uh, greetings. I thought that was a really interesting interview, very informative. I probably will be reading this book because I'm incredibly ignorant on um, the Oklahoma State bombing and I was surprised to have read when you said, you were asking how many, or you were wondering how many people were injured and it said over 500, which is just really shocking. Um, I, I thought it was interesting um, and you asked him about the, he said that McVeigh was more interested in revolutionary ideas and anti-government versus, I guess, um, being a white supremacist. That, that's what he got from the Turner Diaries, um, in, like inspired by. I thought that was interesting because I think when I was looking online, like Cohen told Pro. It was released, information about it was released in the 70s. So it could have been, you know, knowledge to him and being motivated by Pro, even though that was huge government. So I thought that was very interesting that um, it it obviously shows that he was very much motivated by white supremacy and being a white supremacist. Um, The other thing that I was curious about was um sorry, just a second. Like when he said that um the police kind of just even though they found out that he was um had guns and he was talking about anti government I guess actions that he like he wanted to bomb the government or something like that. They said that it was they they wrote it off because it, it was a part of heartland culture. And I wanted to kind of ask him, like, what exactly is heartland culture and how is that culture correlated to, like, guns and bombing and killing? And is that just violent white culture? Um, Those were the two things that kind of were interesting to me. I'll mute my line.
0: That was interesting. I remember that uh, heartland culture. I'm going to have to see if he uses that uh, term in the book. Is that what he calls it? Heartland culture. Let's see. Oh, he does. He does. (laughs) He does. Okay. Wow. But yeah, that, uh, that was fascinating terminology uh, right there. I mean, is heartland culture white? I mean, what is that? That'd have been a good question too. What is heartland culture? And, give us the people specifically who practice so-called heartland culture Um, yeah that's and it was an all white jury that was the context too when he said that all white jury in heartland country I'd even had to go back let me get that passage okay this is the passage uh, specifically let's see Yep, okay, this is it. The doc included former members of the Order and Ellison's Covenant the Sword and the Arm of the Lord, Religion of White Supremacy. Plus the Radical Rights' three most recognizable national leaders. Richard Butler of Area Nations, Robert Miles, an incendiary KKK leader from Michigan, accused of plotting to put cyanide in the nation's water supply. Through the hard way. And Beam, who was arrested at a lakeside hideout in northern Mexico after a dramatic shootout with the federal police. They didn't say they killed him. They said <laughs> like, anyway to be to the government's dismay, Judge Morris Buzz Arnold dispensed with the usual jury selection procedure and handpicked an all-white jury who knew nothing about the defendant's crimes sprees and previous trials. One juror flirted openly with David Lane and who and who with David Lane, who was involved in the murder of the Denver radio host, Alan Burr. We talked about him before, Mark Singular's book. And another ended up marrying David McGuire, one of Jack Knox's suspected would-be assassins. The judge, Knox complained, was dredging right at the bottom of the barrel. After seven weeks of testimony, the jury acquitted everybody, a humiliation for the government and an unalloyed triumph for the radical right white supremacy racism the defendants marched from the courthouse to a nearby civil war memorial and raised the confederate flag the message was the same one god told pharaoh the arkansas clan leader thorn rob crowed let my people go and he does not use heartland right in this context It just goes on to say this is a part of the reasoning why they were going to be real careful prosecuting these white racists. Because, hey, you get these all white juries and (sighs) apparently black people aren't the only ones who have problems with all white juries. Who would have thought? That's almost what it sounds like. If they had got some non white people on this jury, maybe you got a different result. Stunning white coat. That's why I kept coming back on that at the beginning. This is white coat because he did that repeatedly. He did that with the military too and saying, I don't know, this might be military coat as if Al Sharpton runs the military. Rodney King run the military. Jackie Robinson ran the military. Neely Fuller, he ran the Air Force. (laughs) I'm like, come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. Talk to me like I came out of the cotton fields. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, much obliged, Z's mom. Other folks uh, for the hand up, proceed. Can I be hurt? Yes, sir.
3: Thank you. <clears throat> greetings, to us. I'm thinking of taking my call. Uh, greetings to all the calls and listeners. Um, the guest was very informative for the time that he stayed and the things that he said and what he didn't say. Um, yes, I definitely noticed um, his terminology um, when we were emphasizing this in a cultural practice. Um, that's why I'm using a broad brush, um, how he obviously obfuscated terms. Um, I think, in my opinion, I think if you had a, um, presented your definition of racism, white supremacy, um, as usual, I know you've got information um, I think it, I think he might've exited earlier. Um, I found that every time that racism, um, was brought up, he used terms like far right. I was going to ask him, um, is far right the same? And I replace far right with racist white supremacists. Cause that's what the information that he said seemed to be, but he didn't want to say it. I find that consistent pattern. The white guests you have on the show and thank you as always for the program especially the white gas policy is so informative to non-white people. Um, <clears throat> I didn't really realize, you know, about Timothy McVeigh when it happens, like, you know, a white guy bomb something. Um, I used to know a victim. His father was actually doing security and went down to Atlanta for Rudolph. So I was definitely, um, impacted by that. Not just a metaphor or a pun, but, um, we were at work for safety because he was working security. So, um, that was, I remember that one vividly. they, um, um, I noticed a heavy pattern, uh, with these white terrorists, um, their military background. Um, they have, there's some kind of link that either they're all studying the same people, or maybe they're all in the same group controlled by some other more powerful white people. Um, I was going to ask him about, um, why is there compartmentalization between these agencies if they're trying to catch the same person? Um, that tends me to believe or speculate that these people are allowed to do that so they can um, claim non-accountability. Like, oh, okay, you know, I, I didn't get the information, so you can't be whole. You know, that's a military that's a military strategy. Um, <clears throat> yes, thank you for the program, um, and I'm being out there. Thank you.
0: Timothy McVeigh was enlisted at Fort Benning. Joseph G Christopher that's the one I should have asked talk about talk about this all night I should have asked him that did you know about Joseph G Christopher he was also enlisted I think I have to double check to see if Eric Rudolph was enlisted there because that might be trifecta uh that all three don't hold me on the last one but I Timothy McVeigh was enlisted at Fort Benning uh that military Go to get that military training, and then come back and use it. And even hearing the way how he conducted himself, going out and killing folks in thats cowardly behavior. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, Mr. Gumble said, uh, Timothy McVeigh. There were reports that he was shooting helpless Iraqis, non-white people, when they were trying to surrender, no less, ah, gunning them down if they're in front of us. Ah, and playing this thing bad company till the day I die. I'm a bad man. <laughs> Dang, we have you heard that before? We've read that, right? American sniper Chris Kyle saw the movie, even right? what I just say, they released that on December 25, 2014. That's not military culture, that's white culture, almost white Jesus, ain't it? That's patent, they got many, many generations of that white man with a gun why i told you rebel i should add that was on my list too i forgot to ask him. Is timothy mcveigh a psychopath should have asked that my bad uh but this was eric harris that's rebel that's the high school mascot man a white man with a gun this is what we do this was another one where white people going out and blowing up stuff again what in the world is that white culture you just get to go out and blow up stuff break stuff up just for fun (laughs) he said he got high off killing oh my god almost played the sound effect live almost played it live I'll play it now Uh, he said get that in there talking about old Timothy McVeigh uh, while he was in Iraq white people kill for fun indeed indeed hear that with Columbine seeing that over and over and the cowardly behavior they said that about Timothy McVader blow up a daycare center with children put earplugs in and then run away what do you call that coward that's that's Children, they could have said they should be saying the same thing about Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold. Aren't they the same thing? Child killers. That's the same thing. You're going out there shooting a 14-year-old cowering underneath a table. Cowardly behavior. That's Eric Rudolph. He said that. Said, hey, I had security there. I was ignorant about Timothy McVeigh. Two- I was in the same boat. I was ignorant about Columbine ignorant about Timothy McVeigh. and they're related I would have never known and they don't teach that way either they do not talk about these events as dang dang Did he say he remember Eric Rudolph Atlanta I remember that with the Olympics everybody should remember how is that not talked about everywhere a white supremacist bombed the Olympics in the United States and was on the land for years and they wrote a song about him How is that? That's what I mean about that is white culture. This lax attitude towards white criminality. That's how Columbine happened. That's how Eric Rudolph stayed free for so long. That's how Timothy McVeigh, this was allowed to happen. If Tim McVeigh was Leroy, Eric Rudolph was Jamal. You already told about Columbine. I don't need to bring that up. Oklahoma City, Alpha P. Murrah Building would still be standing. Atlanta Olympics, at minimum, Leroy would not have been out on the lam all those years. It took them a long time to catch Eric Rudolph and even some white people theorize, dang, are white people helping him to do this? That's not unanimous. Some white people don't think he got help, but some white people do think, man, you got some of these same people Timothy McVeigh types. Mad. The government. That's right. We support it. They made songs about him. He said that where I fit in so-called pulp culture, how white people will see me as a white man I am enacting just violence. That's what they said in uh, Columbine. We are the heroes and that's how they're seen. Timothy McVeigh, excuse me, Ted Kazin, you mix up the white bombers. They got t-shirts. Ted Kaczynski for president. How is that? How is Jeffrey Dahmer a celebrity? How is Charles Manson a celebrity? A lot of these people killed children. How is that? What does it mean to be white? Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up commentary to share. Greetings. Retired firefighter in Florida.
2: Yes. Sorry about that. Uh, earliest new phone didn't know which switch was mute. Uh, I, uh, uh, been to the, uh, the, uh, site, in Oklahoma city and, uh, took pictures. I think I mentioned it on a, on a pre prior, uh, program, uh, Oklahoma city is only about maybe about 55 miles away from, uh, the undergraduate, uh, college that I attended. Uh, and I did my student teaching in Oklahoma city. Uh, I had, I had it on a phone, the pictures that I took, uh, and the phone is, uh, no good anymore, but I plan on going, uh, back to Oklahoma city, uh, this coming fall in around October. Uh, and I would I plan on, you know, going through the uh, museum area. They have like a museum and, in and, and also the outdoor, uh, exhibit where the building used to be at, uh, that's out there. Um, uh, so i'm somewhat familiar with the uh incident that took place in oklahoma City uh, you mentioned earlier about uh and i, I heard the part when you were uh talking with the uh with the guests and it it is true uh you name the weapon white people uh have the ability the legal ability to practice with all sorts of weaponry. I wouldn't say, uh, like ships or anything like that, but just about anything that is considered to be a ground, ground, uh, uh instrument of warfare, including tanks, uh, you can see it on YouTube where they actually, it's a, it's a, uh, target practice site that looks like a mountainous canyon like, uh, uh, place. Where anything from heavy machine guns to tanks to artillery weapons, uh, that you you can go out there for a small fee and get practice. So uh, it things things are quite easily available for white people to do the terrorist things that uh, uh, you are studying about. You know, right now it's, it's not very difficult at all. And, and it's perfectly legal as far as getting some of these licenses that are available for people to be able to get, uh, weaponry that the, the, uh, armies across the world actually have. Uh, so, uh, yeah, those are just my observations. I just wanted to, uh, share those comments with, with everybody. That's it.
0: great equalizer, much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, white culture, the great equalizer. That's what I was saying as well. Like, I mean, that sort of permissiveness. He took the point from me. He's not ignorant. He was not even born on this continent. And he is very aware. He brought up the Black Panther Party. He brought up Cointel Pro. I didn't even say all of that. He brought that up. You know, goodness well, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale. Eldridge Cleaver all of the black female members as well I just can't think Oh, Asada. she wasn't even in the black oh yes she was Asad Shakur all the rest of the members of the Black Panther Party Kathleen Cleaver I do know black female members there you go uh, all the rest of them they you know are out with explosives let me get the anarchist cookbook see if we can get tired of these crackers and pigs are you serious are you serious I saw what you did to them with the breakfast program, Grits. I saw what you did, Opalaka 3. They just had a flag. You tell me you got some niggers out there. We're going to go and, you know, get us some fertilizer. Or we're we just going to go get some pipe bombs, you know. Make some tennis ball bombs, that sort of thing. Are you serious? You saw they just had the uh, not effing around. Well, they were just going out I don't think they had but maybe they did I didn't hear that I just heard that they were doing marches and they would have firearms legally I believe uh, and were going out doing marches and then bang they got arrested imagine some black people going out and doing that much less having a whole in encamp- that's what I said that's like generations you see that white and all over the world they got that in South Africa here white people armed mad not going to take it not going to push us around like what what are you taught that's why i said that is another definite definition of cowardly behavior when you are dominated by fear they're going to take our guns the dark people are coming the iraqis we got to do something all of that and the result ended up being you going and diamond, same thing, Timothy McVeigh I'm going to go shoot down non-white people who are trying to surrender, who are overmatched anyway and then I'm taking pictures of it they got their hands on the steel. that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about reading more important than watching television non-fiction section you got tons of people like it would be totally different if we were all PhD scholars and we knew about all of this Oh, yes, I'm very informed. Timothy McVeigh, how that relates to white supremacy, racism, and the uh, Columbine, and Ted Kaczynski, and and Eric Rudolph, and how that gets us to January 6th. Trump election, as he said, the boogaloo, all of that, the attacks on the power grids right now. If we knew all of this, let's get to the fiction, say, hey, we could read Hunter. That's not the case. It's not even close. And you'll see so many of those patterns, not just from, dang, the same thing like Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold. And even the broader patterns What I kept emphasizing, dang, I'm collecting pictures of some non-white people that we bombed since we're talking about Oklahoma. I guess I can mention Tulsa, right? We go bomb Iraqis. We go bomb Black Wall Street. Same thing. Bombing cowardly behavior. Got some people that are overmatched anyway, and we can show off our superior firepower and brag about doing it. And then keep little keepsakes and mementos of this conduct. That's white culture. Cowardly behavior. You get a whole town, 10,000 people to go lynch a black person and castrate them. What do you call that? That's cowardly behavior. Any hoodles, learn a little bit about everything, white guests only. Heard that even repeated, some of the folks who participated with us. Other folks, if they have any other commentary uh, to share, what they heard from the guest, how all of this relates to Columbine or commentary uh, from the past week, get in our teaspoon of compensatory call-in.
1: One
6: thing I wanted to add was I looked up Jennifer McVeigh. She's a teacher in North Carolina. She teaches seventh grade. I just, I'm pretty sure North Carolina has a very substantial black population, if I recall. So that's very shocking that there may be black students right now who are in the classroom with Timothy McVeigh's sister who aided him in this bombing. That's just very shocking. And they may even be reading To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that right now. So that was very interesting.
0: That's what I got that was trying to get in. He said, hey, man, I'm a white man, Oxford education, been generous with my time, which two hours, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about this all night with you. I'm out of here. Why did I want to like, oh, wait a minute, Jennifer McAvee, he wrote, this is chapter four, Tim and Terry that's Terry and J- or Tim and Terry and James and that's it meaning there's nobody else who carried out this bombing even though his book suggests wow it seems to be a lot of evidence that suggests other people were involved Jennifer specifically when Jennifer McVeigh heard her older brother's name on the radio her first concern was to avoid being sucked into the bombing conspiracy herself she was in Florida visiting friends and family on an ex- Extended spring break see there white people get the extended spring break but many people knew she was close to Tim despite their six year age difference and knew she shared many of his political ideas mommy Z just says she teach at the school in North Carolina share many of the ideas of old Tim McVeigh aka Tim Tuttle It continues, she was not surprised that he had involved himself in a big revolutionary act because he had all but told her already. A month or two earlier, Tim had written to warn her that something big would happen in the month of the bull, in quotes. I didn't even know that's what April is. Is that the Chinese calendar? What? Uh, And that should stay in, and that she should stay in Florida for as long as possible. He wanted to protect her, and told her to burn the letter. Isn't that Mission Impossible? (laughs) Come on, who has anybody done that? You mail your cousin Leroy, Samantha, whoever it is, Keisha. Say, look here, we're gonna do X, Y, and Z. Got contraband at the barbecue sneak, smuggle it in, put it in the chitlins burn this message upon receipt like come on, come on it continues Uh, which she did burn the letter the same day Jennifer was living in her father's house in Pendleton, New York which is like a stone's throw from Buffalo metaphor Uh, and work, oh man (laughs) wait for it Uh, we'll be here Monday 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, white guests only, white guests only. Even if I pick somebody who is classified as non-white, I'm generally metaphor holding my nose. That's what they say. I'm all about. Let's get at Mr. Gumble. See if we can learn white guests only. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Monday. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest. If you think the cows is constructive, hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com You'll see the PayPal button. Top right corner. PayPal Cash App and Venmo. Much obliged for keeping us on air 14 years. Now, Jenny McVeigh. She Lived with her in her father's house in Pendleton, New York, and working much to the FBI's amusement at a jello wrestling bar while attending community college, the great Mark Furman, so she had some flexibility in her schedule. He wrote a follow up at the end of March, making sure she had done as he asked. Send no more mail after the first of April, he said, and then. Even if it's an emergency, watch what you say because I may not get it in time, and the G men might get it out of my box, incriminating you. Jennifer understood the need to take precautions. Uh, uh. So this is about her hiding all of this material and photographs and stashing this stuff away. When she heard about the bombing, she was staying at an old friend, Dennis Sadler, and his family in Florida Panhandle. She kept her reactions quiet until she heard about her brother's arrest. She was out on a driving errand with Sadler at the time and immediately asked him to take the wheel she smoked a lot of cigarettes on the way back to the house. When she called her family, she learned the FBI was already at her father's house asking about her relationship with her brother. She did not have much time. She took a handful of clippings from the Turner diaries she had with her and burned them in Sandler's laundry room. When the FBI appeared a short time later, they searched the house and Jennifer's pickup, finding a collection of right-wing literature white supremacist the FBI wanted to bombard her with questions but she would not cooperate like her brother she saw the feds as the enemy they came back to (laughs) i can't even i started reading this she said she's teaching the middle schoolers in north (laughs) what in the world you got black people, young academic, one of our listeners, wanna be teachers, help the young people, what they say children are our future. <laughs> get out of here. Did she change her name, I wonder? I don't know. She said she found her. How you get a job teaching your brother killed a hundred sixty-eight people, injured hundreds? got executed on coast circuit tv eh, i guess they got the teacher shortage i was going to say but they got the teacher shortage they got the teacher shortage let me continue it says <clears throat> she would not cooperate like her brother she saw the feds as the enemy they came back to question her again and again over the course of the weekend and she became only more resistant defiant was the word the feds feds used to characterize her, but she soon learned how persuasive the FBI can be. Are you... <laughs> now uh, One more time. Hey, man, I got things to do, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We sit around and talk about bomb this and white woman that and white... I got... How much time, man? Come on, come on, come on. Saturday, but he's in LA too, so I mean, hey, not about you. All. I'm in California Saturday night, LA specifically. But white man, those of us not in that lofty position, dang, is Jenny McVeigh teaching? <laughs> I'm wounded. I'm wounded. I'm wounded. You found the wrong Jenny. That's not how you know that's the Jenny. How You know that that's her? Uh, you you got some fake news, Z's mom. How you know that that's Timothy McVeigh's sister, who is the middle school teacher? Maybe she got disconnected or is not uh not listening, but that would be yeah, maybe we'll hope maybe that's wishful wishful thinking, maybe but. Maybe she got the wrong Jenny. She can let us know how she got confirmation of that. We'll hope maybe she got the wrong person, perhaps. Anywho. uh, Wow. Wow. That I'll get in my segue. That reminded me, I guess, before we get to the close. Prior to broadcasting, uh, it was in Seattle for us. A minor heat wave. It was like 83, 84 degrees earlier. It's substantially cooler now. Uh, It's 78. Uh, To me, it's substantially cooler. Anyway, I'm at the park. Richmond Beach, my beloved at Richmond Beach. They're middle schoolers sitting not too far from me. They're close enough that I can hear their conversation, even though I did not want to ear hustle because I'm prepping to talk to Mr. Gumble. They're chatting it up and they say, man, each generation has just gotten more violent. Perked up, like wow, I'm reading about the bombing and <laughs> Jenny and Tim McVeigh. <laughs> and I'm just like, hmm. So I'm listening to each generation it just getting more violent and it's a real problem. Like, wow, these are some serious talking middle school, like twelve year old. They say, you know, I blame the rap music. I said, Oh God, here we go again. And they say, you know, it's so depressing. I don't even want to be here wow and these were non-white 12 year olds I'll say middle schoolers I was gr- taken aback as an understatement they lamented the violence lack of water terrible predicament for the planet I said man I don't even want to be here now they were chilling at the beach, they had their refreshments and such, and they seemed to get back to things being a little more jovial later on. but I mean, wow, they were twelve, and they looked twelve too when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring that's why I said like I mean really, there should be a lot of. Thought. I think Z's mom, she told us the same thing. Oh my and they're the same age. She said the same thing. She just told us the same thing. She said that she's oh my God, it's terrible. Why'd you even have children? <laughs> oh my God. Oh what a world. What that's we gotta get on our grind. All that says to me is we really gotta get on our grind. That is exactly why Mr. Fuller says, Hey, sex no more than twice a week. That's time and energy. We really should have greater priorities. You can do all this having sex and being reckless about it and no plan and having all these children like what timothy mcveigh did throw away children that's the environment that we're in total disregard that's another reason to know more about this like wow he went in and did what oh you got this nursery here mm, daycare center mm, young children i see Hmm. they're gonna tear all this down wow how many of them mm-hmm. wow okay security mm-hmm. and that was another one i said dang This white dude was able to slip into this federal building. What kind of security do they have? Do black people get to slip into? Because we that's been a big pattern. We've heard lots of that in the book club and other examples where these white people don't even have credentials. They're not supposed to be in this area. How'd you get here? White power. What does it mean to be white? But yeah, no playing around with sexual intercourse. I heard that today. It's that. I put it in my notes to make sure that I said something about that on the broadcast today before we uh, wrapped up and I didn't even look at the bottom of the page for my notes. It had that much of an impact uh, on me hearing non-white. I can't even say teens. At max, tweens. It's depressing. I don't even want to be here and then it took me a while. I've heard this before. Z said the same thing, which is an accurate assessment Timothy McVeigh Peyton Gendron yeah it is depressing yeah who wants to be in a world dominated by injustice and white terrorism anywho any other folks commentary they wanted to make sure they get in before we get ready to wrap up
2: yes sir Gus uh two uh short things uh number one uh these are things that happened this week uh number one uh uh the uh a political official in romania uh identified uh the ambassador of kenya as a monkey uh and even more important the president of the united states at a what i believe a commencement ceremony at howard university stated that white supremacy is the most terrible terror the the greatest terrorist uh uh how did he, how do you address it? Uh the greatest terrorist threat in America, white supremacy is. The President of the United States stated that at a commencement ceremony, I believe, at Howard University this week sometime. That's it.
0: I see that was uh, maybe he said it again, but it looks like that was in May uh, where he said where he said it looks like that's the way he phrased it. Phrased it. The most dangerous terrorist threat uh, is apparently the way it was phrased. I guess I can read the full con Politico dot com has this from May of this year. Uh, he says President Joe Ma denounced white supremacy as the most dangerous terrorist threat to the nation. In his commencement address to Howard University's graduating class on Saturday, this is the first part of May uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and then I guess the full quote: "White supremacy is the single most dangerous terrorist threat in our homeland," Biden said. And I'm not just saying that; saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say this wherever I go. Well, that would be the tell. So maybe he said this again this week. Now, if he says that at the Oval Office the State of the Union address, he's up for re-election. Put that on your campaign trail. Biden, re-election, <laughs> the greatest threat to the home. I
2: probably have it wrong. Let's see. I probably have it wrong. Uh, I, I, I probably didn't look at the date uh, thoroughly. Uh, but even so, I thought it was interesting. I've
0: never heard it before uh,
2: until looking at it today.
0: It looks like he didn't say it this past week. He did say that at Howard in May for the commencement. But I mean, hey, that would be that does not impress me. Um, You'd have to say that everywhere you go. Like I said, put that on the campaign trail that's coming up. Biden 2024 re-election time. Hey, (laughs) we are dealing with white terrorism right here. That is the greatest threat to the homeland. I'm not turning a blind eye. We are addressing it front and center. Make that a part of the presidential debates with my man, Ron DeSantis, or whoever ends up getting the, not Donald Trump, whomever gets the nomination, make that a part of the debate on the campaign trail. We are addressing white terrorism, greatest threat to the U.S. homeland. That would impress me, but just wait until you go to some Negro school and say that to get a few whoopee, and they'll vote for me, and then, you know, off to other topics and say, hey, Ukraine, and we got things, yeah, 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 yeah. Any other commentary folks have before that? Their- I agree. I was just saying I agree with you. Yes, sir. Any other folks? Everyone satisfied?
3: Um, just real quick. I'd like to make a report. Uh, something I've been noticing a lot this week. Um, it The film sounds of freedom um, I do see a lot of evidence, um, Gus, with your statement that white, people did not care about children. I believe that is a true statement. Um, I see this movie as, um, a great example of white savior. Um, the supposed things that happened in the film did not happen as they happen. Um, I've already heard things about, you know, the Oscars, for, you know, they're you going to win an Oscar about it. Um, I see the misdirection is saying that um, South America is where you get this child trafficking from. Um, I see the used politically as far as the quote-unquote left and right, how they want to blame child trafficking on the quote-unquote left and uh, Mr. Biden. Um, very despicable um, and there's a lot can be said about this. Um, thank you for your time.
0: the child trafficking on South America that wasn't the Jeffrey Epstein is he Brazilian now? I was gonna try and sneak in a Prince Andrew joke while we had Mr. Gumble with us because he's British and all, you know, but I wasn't slick enough, I guess um I, I don't even system of white supremacy. you just lie and say any kind of thing, uh, so you just put that out there child traffic hey, oh yes, that's the Brazilian South American you know brandy. what. We had, uh, I forgot to or neglected Terry Nichols, who was convicted with uh, Timothy McVeigh for this bombing. He got life. He's still alive. He talked to the author quite a bit. Terry Nichols got a mail order bride from the Philippines. Oh, I did get that in. And Timothy McVeigh was having sex with her. That's probably straight rape. Uh, but having sex with her, having an affair so called, but that's probably just straight rape. Um, that I was going to make explicit. These are folks who are reading the Turner Diaries and into racism, but he gets a non white. Male order bride one that's an enormous position of power right there and another illustration you can practice white supremacy racism and still engage in sexual activity with a non-white person it's a long history of that but many of us still get confused about that but yeah that's another tidbit i didn't know either uh terry nichols co-conspirator who was actually convicted in all of this with mr mcveigh cow bell and i guess timothy mcveigh too cowbell and the homoeroticism eroticism they thought the two were gay lovers wow and that's <laughs> Ted Kaczynski was declined for a sex change the supermax in Colorado they called Tim McVeigh Virgin McVeigh it was rumored Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold Died virgins. They're in high school, so it's a little bit more understandable at 17, but still. Pattern. Right there. Big one. Big one. Anywho. uh, Much obliged. Folks tuning in, apologies for the uh, tech snafu for the folks who are listening in via the phone line. We'll be here on Monday. Cannot wait. Much obliged for folks tuning in, hopefully worthy of your... Saturday evening yes uh sobriety would be best particularly under conditions of white supremacy racism creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
2: nigga you so brainwashed
0: i'm a victim brother you a
2: victim yeah. I'm a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been
1: conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
3: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.